So I really appreciate you guys all coming out. I'm going to try to basically core dump on you all of the research that I've done about DEI without basically just reading to you. Well, I will actually just read to you from the text a lot, but I want to kind of give you an overview of the workshop. So we're going to do three, I'm going to do three lectures to get these other workshop activities Michael just mentioned. I'm going to give three lectures. They're largely split among the three topics, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but not necessarily in that order. Um, but I'm going to kind of give an overview tonight and then talk about equity. We'll talk about diversity tomorrow, and then we'll talk about inclusion and kind of replies or solutions or something like that in the third lecture. Um, what I want to, before we get started with actually talking about the material, I want to tell you what my goals are so you know you can keep your expectations low. Um, the goal, my main goal with this workshop, this is kind of my thing, this is sort of what I do, is I want to try to bring conceptual clarity to this issue. Um, I'm not a policymaker, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a lot of things. But I do have kind of the ability to cut through the jargon and the BS. I really understand the wokish language, as it were. So I want to bring conceptual clarity that's going to include linguistic clarification, which is going to be extremely important. It's extremely frustrating and extremely annoying to have to deal with linguistic clarification as a centerpiece of a kind of culture war, ideological battle or whatever. But it really does come down to the meanings of words. Uh, even like the meaning of, you know, what do you mean by is? Um, I also want to give conceptual contextualization to what we're, what we're looking at with DEI and the related subjects, because as it turns out, this diversity, equity, inclusion stuff, when we start and start to see how the linguistic manipulations work, you're going to kind of feel like, well, this isn't real. This is kind of fraudulent in some sense. And uh, the thing is that if we enter into what we might refer to as clown world, this stuff actually does make sense. There is an internal, I, I hesitate to use the word logic, but there is an internal, not quite consistent way of thinking about issues in which you can kind of understand, well not kind of, you can completely understand where this stuff comes from, how it gets implemented, why it gets implemented, as it gets implemented, and what its goals are, and therefore what its next steps will be, and why it's going to create the disasters that it pretty readily creates everywhere it goes. Um, in particular, these two things come together and so I want you to become aware, I'm not going to harp on this, I did a long podcast on it about the nature of what we call pseudo-reality, philosophers refer to pseudo-realities, false linguistic constructions that create a distortion of reality, and these things are called theoretical lenses. They're ways of interpreting the data that you find in the world, of filtering the data that you see in the world, and so... That's when I said, if we step into clown world, it makes sense. It turns out within the not truly real world created by these linguistic distortions and these manipulations, um, there is a logic that plays out. And clown world is describable. It is a false reality, though. And the reason you have to understand that is reality doesn't really care about your theory. Reality is the thing that you run into when your beliefs are false. And so eventually reality is going to catch up with us. This stuff does not work as it's being implemented, and that's going to catch up with us. So a big point there, and I know any Christians in the audience will get excited about this, a big point there is that the point that I'm really trying to bring people to is the capacity for discernment. You have to be able to look at a document, whatever your walk of life is, corporate, education, government, whatever it is, everyday life, your kid's homework, whatever it happens to be, you have to be able to look at a document and discern 
where you are seeing something that's genuinely dangerous, cloaked in nice sounding language, and where you're seeing something that's a genuine good faith effort to try to make changes that may or may not be necessary. Discernment is a high order skill, and that is in, in fact what it takes to be able to combat the kinds of problems that seem to be unraveling parts of our society. Um, so I do martial arts, I've done martial arts for over, getting on 30 years almost, and it, there's a, it's kind of a thing, you know, everybody learns their katas or whatever, and you can't teach somebody to fight that way, and kind of mixed martial arts expose that the traditional martial arts don't teach people to fight very well, and they get beat up in the ring by people who fight. And discernment's like that. I can tell you a lot about DEI, I can tell you a lot about critical race theory, I can tell you a lot about any of these ideas, but until you develop discernment through practice, through engagement with this stuff, so you can tell one thing from another on your own terms, you don't have much. I can show you a lot of things, I can tell you a lot of things, but you actually have to develop a higher order capacity to understand what you're dealing with to be able to combat this. As I go around the country, I talk all over the place now to audiences of various sizes and mixtures of people, and I tell people at this point, that might not be you. Maybe it's not your job to figure out how to dance around in high levels of discernment with linguistic constructions that create a false reality. That's fine. Your job might be to support people who do. Your job might be to build a network where your neighborhood is knitting itself back together instead of fighting all the time. It could be something so simple as getting your kids in the neighborhood playing together again. Your role doesn't have to be to fight this, but if you're here, I hope you're at least interested in it and will see that there's a need to fight this. Um, one of the reasons that you have to become discerning if you wanna deal with what's going on with diversity, equity, and inclusion and the related issues uh, is because the professional literature that exists on this is worthless. It's wholly corrupted. I don't know how to tell you which journal you can read and trust an article out of it, which magazine you can read, and trust an article, what book you can read, and trust a chapter or a paragraph without knowing maybe who the author is, if I happen to know who that author happens to be. The academic literature, and many of you will know my background, some of you won't, but I played a role in exposing the fact that the academic literature is profoundly corrupted with this ideological uh, bent that underlies, as it turns out, what has become the DEI movement that we run into today. So we can't trust the professional or academic literature on this. It might say, oh, there's a study that shows that diversity increases output by blah, 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 blah. And it turns out that if you actually did your legwork, you did your due diligence and dug into that study and saw how they were interpreting the results or what the limitations in that study were, and then what they claim that the study shows, it usually one or two links down that, that chain, you find something just completely broken. You cannot draw the conclusion that they're they're drawing from the studies that they're claiming in many, many cases. And a lot of times it's hardly more than a polemic or a opinion piece that's been glorified as an academic article. Sometimes they're written as autoethnographies, which are literally diary entries with, with citations. And so it's very, very difficult to rely on, oh, well, there's a study that says, because the quality of the study, it may not even in fact even be a study, it might be an opinion piece calling itself a study. So that's one issue for discernment. The other is, and I'm just gonna be blunt, I'm not, I don't mess around with what I'm talking about. What we are up against, and DEI is an integral vehicle for making it happen, is communism. In a new form, it's not the communism of, of Lenin, it's, a, it's new, it's in a new shape, and there's only one way to defeat an encroaching communist movement, and the way is through discernment. 
You have to be able to discern the linguistic lies that allow them to seize institutional power and to apply policies that do the damage that pervert the institution into a communist organ. If you cannot discern that, you are not ready. Know your enemy. You have to actually know how they do it. You have to know what both sides of the picture are, why their linguistic manipulation is the way that it is, and then what it really means, and be able to argue both sides better than the people pushing it. And then you have to be able to go and discerningly apply that in order to push this stuff back. And that is actually the, the stakes. DEI is not, whatever DEI might have been in 1980, DEI is not friendly now. It is not good. And it is the vehicle to move communism into the corporate world more than anything else, more than education, more than anything else. It is to create, I said it's new communism. It is to make communism that works through corporations, which is a fusion of communism and fascism into one new thing. And if you want to know what that, how can that be? That can't exist. Communism and fascism are opposites. Look at China under the model that was pioneered by Deng Xiaoping that's still in operation today, where they have a limited open market that is all at the pleasure of the CCP, which is communist, which redistributes resources through a communist and socialist program. That's the model. DEI is the mechanism by which that gets brought into the corporate world primarily, but also into schools and other things kind of as an accessory. So that's a big picture understanding. That's one of my goals with the workshop is to give you a big picture understanding of what's going on. It's a grave understanding. It is not a comfortable thing. I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable. I wish we could just laugh and tell jokes and then go home and go out to the beach. But it turns out we're at a bad time. Um, very nice place to be in a bad time. And I want to inspire actually actionable thinking. Why? Because I'm terrible at it. And so I'm good at consequential thinking. I'm good at analysis. I'm not great at solutions or practical stuff, usually, and um, you are. If you're leaders in an industry, if you're leaders in a school, if you're leaders in your family, it doesn't, leaders in a church, whatever it happens to be, you're already doing actionable thinking. I'm just a nerd. So I need other people to do my dirty work for me, and that's you. Um, all the time when people like myself end up studying something, they get very informed about something and they can tell you about something, whether, like I could talk to you, I literally, in Tampa a few weeks ago, talked for like six hours about CRT straight to an audience like this and in a workshop similar to this. And I can talk to you about that on and on and on and on. And then people say, wow, you know so much, tell me how to live. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you what to do. I don't know what, in a lot of cases, I don't know what you should do. If you're in a corporate or a lawyer or a, a you know, legal sense or a, um, educational setting, I don't know the ropes of your ring. You know the ropes. I'm trying to give you the tools to take them into the ring and fight with them. Um, I do know that what it will take is pushback from virtually every sector because it's being pushed upon us in virtually every sector. And that's going to have to be large scale revolt largely by the public. But if leaders, whether it's in industry, in commerce, in education or whatever, won't step up here and there and start taking up the challenge along with that, it's not gonna happen. Um, the current letter from the Department of Justice about school boards attempting to uh, kind of pretend not to, but definitely labeling moms and dads as domestic terrorists for uh, disagreeing with critical race theory and mask mandates and some of the other things that they're showing up to school boards very angrily, and in some cases very justified 
in their anger, like where the Antifa teacher was in, uh, in what was that, right outside of Sacramento, um, where you have, you know, these literal pedophilia being taught to children in schools, including like Fairfax County in Virginia. I think it's Fairfax, maybe it's Loudoun. Um, that's a problem. Parents have every right to be angry about this. They show up, and if the DOJ is now stepping in and saying, whoa, we're going to call you guys domestic terrorists and get the FBI involved, they know that's because parents have power to push back and can actually turn schools back around. Um, so inspiring, actionable thinking is kind of the last thing that I'm hoping to achieve. So now that's the boring part. Now we get the exciting part. We're going to talk about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're usually presented as a suite, as I just said, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's because they are a suite of ideas. It turns out that diversity, equity, and inclusion I had a hard time, I mean, it seems easy, right? Like just, oh, one day on, on, on equity, one on diversity, one on inclusion, which is what we're gonna do. Very natural. But it turns out these are actually so interlinked that it's very difficult to separate them. Diversity doesn't work without inclusion. It just doesn't. You actually have to have them together. The diversity and inclusion have to be brought in together or they don't work because inclusion is how you keep the diversity around. And the goal of diversity and inclusion both is equity. There's no purpose for diversity and inclusion as they are implemented unless the goal is to get to equity. And so diversity, equity, and inclusion can't really be separated. They are a package deal. They are a single program. Um, when you start to realize that and we start to realize what these pieces are and how they look, then you can start to understand the motivations and the outcomes. That's where I was talking about developing actionable thinking a second ago. If we understand where this stuff comes from, what are the motivations of the people employing it the way that it's being employed, and we understand consequentially which way, what direction this kind of thinking or implementation will take us, then you can start to actually make a strategy to, uh, well, first of all, you'll want to fight back. I'm not even going to say you, you might want to. You will. If you understand this correctly, you will want to fight back, and, uh, unless you are one of them. <laughs> we can have the McCarthy session tomorrow. <laughs> But you will want to push back, but you have to know what's going on, the motivations and the outcomes, so that you can do that intelligently. Um, the underlying assumption and goal is, of course, that they're going to try to, like I just said, achieve equity by fostering what they call diversity and inclusion. So that's how they link together. That might be on the rocks. I'm not going to go into it deeply now. We'll come back to it in a little bit. But allegedly, this may be DEI might be on the way out. It might be about to get shifted linguistically to... EA, you'll notice that when critical race theory became under a lot of fire, all of a sudden it's, you know, something else that, like culturally responsive teaching or ethnic studies or social emotional learning that contains some critical race theory or a lot of critical race theory or just is critical race theory, uh, depending on which one it is. And they just gave it a new name. Oh yeah, we're not doing that thing you don't want us to do. It's something else now. Well, DEI, apparently the D and the I, the diversity and inclusion have a problem we will uh, uncover that here, and they may be shifting to an EA, equity and anti-racism program instead. So keep, I don't know if that's happening, this is in the scuttlebutt range, but it's, it's got uh, grounding in the literature as we'll hear, um, so that may be coming. And of course, now we all have to laugh. Is it D-E-I, like God, Dei in Latin, or is it die? Is it diversity, inclusion, and equity? Die, the die ideology, die company. You got to put die in your company. Or is it Eddie, um, EDI, which is the order we're going to cover it in. Um, there's even Jedi, 
where they've put J for justice on the front of it. But then there was just a paper that came out that about a thousand people asked me if I did it, saying that calling it Jedi is problematic, so we can't call it Jedi anymore because as a point of personal privilege, Jedis are intergalactic shepherds and heroes and they reify white privilege or something like that. And so can't have Jedi anymore. I didn't write that paper. It's not a hoax to my knowledge. Maybe it is. It's now problematic, but justice is actually an important concept we're going to come back to again and again as well. So it links on to the EDI, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. I want to actually get it in your head already that the idea that, that the J, justice, is actually an extension of, in a particular way, the E, equity. So if equity goes long enough, we allegedly get justice, and that's sort of the idea. So that's what the, the JEDI program we're not allowed to use anymore is. Like I said, we're going to do EDI, and the reason I, I want to tell you that we're going to do equity first and then diversity and inclusion second because natural order that everybody calls it uh, DEI, diversity should go first. Um, if you don't really understand the goal, the equity part, goal, the goal of it is equity through diversity and inclusion, then it's harder to understand what diversity and inclusion are actually for. So I either had to do diversity and inclusion first and then stick equity last, and that's the die model, uh, and make it like a crescendo punchline, or I had to just drop the bricks on you and go uh, from there. And it works out better if I drop the bricks. So we're gonna go in that order. So tonight's equity, once I kind of give you a little bit of an overview of, of, of everything. Um, there is some evidence, I mentioned the evidence and the literature being poisoned. There is some evidence from about two decades ago that strongly suggested that DEI or EDI or whatever, diversity programs in general are probably beneficial in workplaces. And these are going to be quoted, if you're in the corporate world, you're gonna know they're gonna be quoted all over the place, all the time, look at how it improved X, how it improved Y. This is where I'm telling you discernment's so important because if you go back and read the definitions of diversity they were using, of course it did. Because they were using a real definition of diversity, which means that people have different opinions that are somehow germane to the thing. So there's some relevant expertise or some relevant skill, something to bring to the table, but there actually are different perspectives coming as well. And it turns out that that form of diversity not only is valuable in a company, it's valuable, period. There's some result that I read recently and I can't quote who it is. I didn't intend to bring it up, but I just thought of it. And uh, it was something like that for every 10-fold increase in population density in a city, you get a 13-fold output in productivity and innovation out of the city. So you have a positive sum scaling up when you bring more people together with more perspectives and stick them together and make them work together. Uh, this is true. But it turns out that the existing literature on the efficacy of diversity, equity, and inclusion is appealing to that stuff that talked about one thing, and it's actually implementing something else that's not working. And there, were, there was a nice paper in the Harvard Business Review a couple of years, 2017 maybe, or 18, explaining why DEI programs even at the time were not returning the results that they expected and why, that and often, and many times, they're making things worse, not better, on the exact promises they were failing to deliver, uh, and there are good reasons for that. There have been some other good, the New York Times even reported that diversity, equity, and inclusion programs are not working. And if the New York Times reported something like that, then there, there's probably a problem that they couldn't avoid. Um, and the, the reason for that is because the definitions underneath diversity, equity, and inclusion shifted. That's why we have to do the linguistic clarity game that's a little bit tedious. But uh, the meanings of diversity especially shifted where diversity no longer means people who have germane expertise coming in and working on a problem from different perspectives that might be useful or valuable. 
like you might see, for example, I don't know if you know what the Santa Fe Institute is, but the Santa Fe Institute started a number of, uh, many years ago, and they do these very innovative research projects where they'll bring together, um, say you got a geology question that's really interesting, open question in the research. They'll bring together a couple of geologists, they'll bring them out to the institute for a couple of years as a fellow, they live there, and they'll bring in, say, a mathematician and a physicist and an engineer and maybe a marketing guy. And stick those, that's your geology team now. And the idea is that maybe the marketing guy has some wild idea that says, well, if this was a problem in marketing, this is how we would try to solve it. And that's actually a difference in perspective. Maybe it works out sometimes, maybe it doesn't, but they had a pretty good run of coming up with very innovative research as a result, I think, of this kind of extreme experiment in, in research diversity. Um, that's one definition. Another definition is who you happen to have been born as because of doctrines like structural and material determinism create the most relevant difference in perspective that could possibly be. And so we're now going to judge you based, A, on di uh, the diversity of demographic characteristics if and only if, B, you have the correct authentic political position, you have correctly politicized that identity position. So what you end up with is homogenous politics homogenous ways of thinking about the world in people who happen to look different or who sleep with different people or whatever the, the relevant metric of identity happens to be. So they've changed the definition from one to the other and uncovering how that happened is a lot of what we're gonna try to get through. Um, even that said though, that the, a lot of the evidence for diversity you know, has been positive at least 20, 30 years ago a lot of it's actually worse than you think. A lot of the studies cited, I was, when I was doing the research for this, I was reading about Supreme Court cases, as we'll, you'll hear, and we were, I was reading about, I was reading a paper that was written in a law review in advance of an important decision in 2013 that was called um, uh, Grutter versus Bollinger, which is a University of Michigan uh, diversity admissions case. And it was referring back to a case that's the landmark that we'll also talk about that was called um, University, Regents of the University of California versus Backey, which was 1978. And Backey, the Backey decision is the kind of main big diversity in education and higher ed decision, and it was key. And so this paper in 2003, anticipating the SCOTUS decision about Grutter versus Bollinger, so some 25 years later, was looking back to Backey, and then it was saying, well, all this evidence has come out in favor of diversity since. And it's saying, for example, you know, we did a survey of whatever number of students at Ivy League universities and asked them if they thought that the diversity unit in their uh, programs increased, or having more diverse people around them improved their education. And I read this and I thought, which Ivy Leaguer in 2003 or two would have possibly said no to that? So this is not, I mean, I did enough statistics when I was a PhD in math back in a former life to know that that's not going to generate necessarily usable data. A subjective survey of people who are going to be highly motivated to give a particular answer is not something trustworthy. And then when you see the report, it was like 97% of them or something like this said that it improved their experience. And that's really high conformity. Um, 
But these kind of subjective things like asking elite college students, did this new elite fashionable thing make your experience better or worse, rather than doing, you know, there were some other tests that were like rigorous educational outcomes, capacity for, for critical thinking, et cetera, that were positive. But some of the studies are very subjective in nature, and they have to be taken with a grain of salt because they're being applied by activists who don't care that they're very subjective in nature. So what we're dealing with then is something very different than the diversity, where the diversity industry kind of started and what most people would think the diversity industry is about. We're dealing, the transition between these two definitions in fact comes out of a branch of philosophy that's not nearly, uh, not quite obscure, but not nearly as well known as it needs to be, which is called neo-Marxism, which developed primarily from the 1930s through the early 1970s. And neo-Marxism, developed, and I don't want to get too deep into the history of neo-Marxism, but it developed as a reply to the fact that these, these, these researchers, these, these communist researchers decided that Marx was wrong about some key points. One of them, as a matter of fact, is that um, justice and freedom are what they call dialectical concepts, so they exist in contradiction. So if you have more justice, you have less freedom, and more freedom, you have less justice. So you see the attacks on freedom in the name of justice today. That's a neo-Marxist ideology that has come straight down the track from 1930s Max Horkheimer to whoever you listened to on MSNBC this morning. Straight line. They also became, in the 1960s, very aware that corporate capitalism had solved many of the problems of exploitation, mostly by breaking up trusts, which is a huge problem, again, now in new sectors. Financial sector, there's a big problem. Tech sector, there's a big problem. You have certain industries where there's, you know, a very strong concentration of a lot of, of resources in a very small number of hands. Well, they busted up the trust problem. I guess Teddy Roosevelt mostly busted up the trust problem in the early 20th century, and then the neo-Marxists said, wow, the big exploitations of capitalism have been stolen away from us by these you know, changes to the corporate structure, and now there's no, the working class, in Mark, Herbert Marcuse's world, words specifically, has been stabilized. And Max Horkheimer, I just named his words, he said, well, Marx said that the, 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 the capitalism would immiserate the workers, but it doesn't, it gives them the opportunity to build a better life. Turns out Horkheimer was like, yeah, the American dream is real. And that's a problem because we can't possibly raise a proletariat who's going to bring us to a revolution if we don't have a working class that's going to be easily agitated into becoming leftist and Marxist activists. They've been stabilized. They've been made conservative. We have to look somewhere else. And Marcuse said, where is that energy? Well, it's in, in his words, the ghetto populations. It's also in the radical feminists. It's in all these kind of identity politics sectors, the sexual minorities, the, the racial minorities, and the, the radical feminists. And he said, well, that's where the energy is. That's where he called them the vital need for liberation. That's where that is. Where do you find the know-how? Well, that's where you find it in the elite college students. And if you can just indoctrinate the elite college students, then go minister critical theory to people like black power activists, then we can build, as he called it, a new working class out of this kind of ragtag of identity politics. And so my argument that I've made, and I think it's original to me, is that out of neo-Marxism, coming out of the 60s and going into the early 70s, we have the birth of a new phenomenon in Marxism that I call not cultural Marxism, but identity Marxism, where the Marxism is now going to be done across lines of stratification in identity factors like race, sex, sexuality, gender, 
fat status, disability status, and that, as Judith Butler had it, that exasperated et cetera of more identity categories that you have to list every time in all their papers. And so we're in something very different now. And neo-Marxism is very, as many communist ideologies are, very monomaniacal. As one thought, one thought over and over and over again. Power and oppression are the superstructures that define society. We used to think that was just class superstructure, the bourgeoisie lording over the proletariat, and then cultural Marxism came and said, well, they're setting the cultural conditions so the proletariat won't revolt. And then the neo-Marxists said it's more complicated than that because they're building a stable life because capitalism turns out to work. And um, what do we do? And they said, well, identity politics, more or less. By 1977, it had a name, identity politics, that was given to it by radicals who were in the school of these exact neo-Marxists a generation earlier uh, that had been ministered to by these radicalized college professors and students and went on to form what was called the Combahee River Collective, which formed in 1974, named identity politics in 1977, and set the stage for intersectionality, which I'm no longer convinced that Kimberly Crenshaw was that creative at all when she came up with it in her landmark paper in 1989, because it was there in 1977 by people she would have been familiar with. Um, in fact, this not very creative thing is going to come up a few more times here. So just to kind of give you a picture, I'm going to read to you from, believe it or not, this exists, Diversity Officer Magazine. I found this. I was shocked that it exists. It turns out that this article was written by a guy with a PhD, and it's difficult to read. The grammar is what you would expect in Diversity Officer Magazine, if you're familiar with this, just like all those education missives that are like misspelled. Um, I'm trying to make sense of it as clearly as possible for you, but this is what their description of the origin point of this di new direction of diversity really is. He said, diversity education basically started as a reaction to the civil rights movement and violent demonstrations by activists determined to send a clear message to Americans of European descent that black people would no longer remain voiceless regarding their treatment as citizens. Social change in order to achieve a more stable society prevailed was the rationale for the education. Told you, I don't know what that means. I checked it like eight times. I didn't misspell anything. A more stable society prevailed was the rationale for the education, which primarily focused on training to increase sensitivity towards and awareness of racial differences. So this shift to identity politics as a result of the anger and violence on one side of the civil rights movement by activists who were determined to send a clear message that black people would no longer remain voiceless. That's where the seeds of the, the according to Diversity Officer magazine, the seeds of the existing diversity movement came from. But that appeal to the identity politics is the key thing. Um, and that it arose out of that radical identity energy that arose in the 1960s. And partly, though, where he mentions the violent demonstrations, what this actually also represents is actually positive in one sense, is they realized that the violence that they used at the end of the 60s and early 70s didn't work. People didn't like it. And so instead, you had people like Bill Ayers, the Weather Underground, or Weatherman Underground, and you had people like Angela Davis and so on, give up their, their wild lives of domestic terrorism in the literal sense, and instead get into K-12 activism. Virtually all of them went into K-12 activism from being literally violent radicals. And their idea was, we can't be violent, so let's do the long march to the institutions. 
Let's take over the institutions and educate generations who will think this way so that by the time we slowly, 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 slowly change the culture, we can snap fast. We're at the snap fast phase. Welcome to your cultural revolution. What you also will realize is this grew up then in an administrative, educational, bureaucratical, and institutional environment. If we were doing like lab experiments in biology, maybe in Wuhan lab or something, you would know that where you culture the thing determines kind of what comes out as a result. And this is a very bureaucratic institutional disease. It was built up in human relations and human resources departments in the corporate world and the research that goes behind them. It was built up in public administration overwhelmingly. Uh, so it was it literally directly connected to the development, the theoretical development of the administrative state. This is a bureaucratic and institutional disease and that is therefore tailored to infect bureaucratic and institutional structures. It's not necessarily that everybody in academia or the corporate world or whatever is a coward or a sellout or a shill. It's a disease meant to infect those structures, and it's very effective at it. Just like when you get sick, it's not necessarily your fault that you got sick, but if you do nothing to make yourself better and you die of that, some of that might be on you. Um, the magazine, Diversity Officer Magazine, by the way, tells more of the origin story. They blame the military. They blame Truman. It turns out right after World War II, Truman decided that the segregation of the military was total BS after what just happened. And so he put forth an executive order. I wrote down the number somewhere, and somehow I didn't put it in my notes, so I don't remember what number. It's in the 9,000s to give you some idea. So 5,000 some odd EOs ago. Um, I guess 6,000 probably now. That's a little Biden joke. Um, so what they did was they started to do really aggressive like integration diversity training sessions that literally they would put people, as they said, in the hot seat. And they would kind of grill them about their racism, or they would grill them, have, have a minority sit in, in the hot seat and have them just spill their guts about all the racism they experienced. And what they, turned out, what they found out is that this didn't work really well. It turned out to create a lot of division and a lot of problems. And the military, after doing this experiment on soldiers, had to wheel it way back. But the problem is, is that the model that the military was like, whoa, too extreme, is the model that actually gets used in diversity trainings today. There are very often hot seats. They are very often people singled out and having to tell their experiences in front of a crowd. They're very often taking the people of one demographic category and setting them on one side of the room while everybody else sits on the other side of the room and the people on the other side of the room are gonna go one by one and confess how they're racist or how they're homophobic or how they've always kind of thought trans was weird or whatever while all the black or uh, trans or gay people are sitting here listening and finding out that all their coworkers secretly have all these issues with them. And it turns out to be not that psychologically healthy to do. That's actually how these things get impl implemented. And that's what the military was doing at first, and then we we're like, whoa, this is way too extreme. By the 1950s, they backed off from that. The early 1950s, they backed off from that because it caused too much division, too much strife. And this is the way Diversity Officer Magazine describes that part. It says, white American participants tended to respond to confrontation and sensitivity training in three important ways. One group of whites became more insightful about the barriers to race relations as a result of being put on the hot seat during the encounters. Remember, this is like 1950 for, for context, cultural context of what was being gone up against. Another group became more resistant to racial harmony as they fought against accepting the facilitator's label of them as racists. 
Turns out people who are doing their best don't like to be called terrible things for their attempts. A third group of people became what the military referred to as fanatics. These individuals began advocating against any forms of racial injustice after the training. HR Day's research on diversity training in the military indicates that the Defense Department Race Relations Institute reduced the number of training hours and curtailed the use of the hot seat techniques in response to negative evaluations by many participants who, com who completed the training. Diversity training in corporations also began to change as affirmative action laws were being curtailed by the federal government. Little CRT context for you. Critical race theory grew out of this same soil, which believed that, oh, affirmative action came into the picture you know, in the late 60s going into the 70s. It was very expansive at first, nobody quite knew, and then civil rights law started to grind in and cases started to come out, and some of it started to get pulled back, narrowed in scope. The, uh, in fact, the scope of what would count as acceptable kept getting smaller, and there were more and more arguments made that from the beginning it was always intended to be a temporary leg up that was in threat of becoming a permanent uh, biased treatment by race, which is directly in violation of the Civil Rights Act that it's supposed to serve. And so critical race theory actually grew out of the soil. And if you read, for example, the introduction, it'll take you about three hours. I'm kid not kidding, it's incredibly long. The introduction to a book called Critical Race Theory, The Key Writings That Form the Movement, you can find them discussed it. I think that book mentions affirmative action over 500 times. You can tell critical race theory and affirmative action have a deep historical relationship because affirmative action is the incentive structure that they're trying to maximize around. Um, so diversity training in corporations began to change as affirmative action laws were being curtailed by the federal government. What that means, to read between the lines, is as affirmative action laws were becoming more and more called into question, not that they were even closed down, and that they were being narrowed in scope, diversity trainers were like, we can fill this gap. We can keep doing this same project. And that's exactly what we'll see with the Supreme Court cases. Diversity and inclusion became literally the tools to replace affirmative action where affirmative action was being ruled against the Constitution or against the Civil Rights Act. They go on and they say, well, gender, and this is a very important paragraph, by the way, while gender diversity education began to emerge during the 1970s and 1980s, I went a little too far, hang on. Diversity education in the United States expanded in the 1990s to focus on barriers to inclusion for other identity groups. So the diversity industry here in education started, it says, with gender. We're gonna find a, we're gonna have a slightly competing claim to that where it actually, a lot of it made its way in uh, through special education. But um, gender was the first big educational program at least not on the legal side of where diversity education started to happen. But it began by the 1990s to focus on other identity groups. This is after intersectionality comes into the picture. Ability difference, ethnic, religious, gay, lesbian, and other worldviews, gay and lesbian are worldviews according to the woke, began to appear in education and training. Some diversity pioneers argue that the broad, this is the key part, argue that the, the broader view of diversity has watered down the focus on race to the extent that it is no longer seriously dealt with in training. And you can go ahead and laugh at how preposterous that claim is. Their assumption is that focusing on prejudice toward other groups does not activate the visceral reaction needed for individuals, organizations, and the society as a whole to deal with core discrimination issues. So talking about anything that's not race isn't volatile enough to make the political change that we want. This is from Diversity Officer Magazine. What a mess. 
What a mess. But that last part's very important. That thing where other identity groups started to come into the picture, it started with gender. This story, the feminists dragged all this stuff in, whether you believe it or not. The femi- radical feminists dragged almost all of this stuff in. With the trans stuff, it's now been, it's basically their, their worst nightmare. They created their, their own dragon to have to slay or whatever, and it's burning down their whole, their whole little uh, commune. And now we've got them saying by the 1990s, wait a minute, we're not focusing enough on race. Or as Gloria Ladsden Billings had it in her 1995 paper called Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education, we're not making race, in her exact words, the central construct for understanding inequality, which is what she says is the point of CRT, is to make race the central construct for understanding inequality. So what we're seeing then is, oh, diversity is not really going to be about diversity, it's going to be about race. That's why we're going to see this shifting from D-E-I to A-E. So diversity, equity, and inclusion to anti-racism and equity. Sorry, gay people, it was only going to be about race from the beginning. Your diversity is soon to be the wrong kind of diversity, just like all of my South Asian friends have told me, or even sometimes East Asian. Where are we on the chart? You're white. What? You know, very, very brown. How am I white? Oh, you're the wrong kind of diversity. We count you as white because of your cultural values, blah, blah, blah. This is a thing that happens in, well, that was a cardiologist who told me that. That was a diversity training for cardiologists, that he was Indian, and he's the wrong kind of diversity, so he's white now on the new chart. This is a very um, rigorous approach to diversity, as you can tell. In other words, his politics were wrong, right? Okay, so... What are the goals of this diversity, equity, inclusion movement then? Well, it turns out the state of Washington, the uh, famous conservative state on the West Coast, just kidding, uh, the state of Washington implemented in 2018, I think they started it, maybe 19, an equity task force. The governor ordered this. It has since become an, a state office of diversity and equity. It's actually been implemented by legislation that Inslee has signed into law. This thing is a part of the state of Washington's government now. And their goal, as they said in their equity task force meeting before their delivery of the things to the governor at the beginning of 2020, was that their goal was to establish this so that the need for the diversity office of the state of Washington would last for at least 50 years. And it is now by law. Well, what they say, they tell you the goal. They have a document they presented to the governor. You can look this up very easily. Just type in Washington State Equity Task Force into the favorite search engine, probably the duck one. And then you will find out that you can actually read their like 147-page report they turned into Inslee. And that's what I'm going to read to you from. And the goal, they said, is systems change. Systems change. Participants hoped, they're talking about focus groups dealing with some of the things they were talking about, participants or then the focus groups, hoped the Office of Equity can be a catalyst for change at the policy and systems level. The office would promote the recognition that systems work is intended and we need to dismantle and rebuild the current one. Did you get that? The goal is what we're doing needs to be completely dismantled and then we're going to build a new one. Dismantle what exists, build something completely new. So when you read in the Critical Race Theory and Introduction book on the second page, literally the first paragraph of the book from Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk, that's called Critical Race Theory and Introduction, literally is the title of the book, where that they say that um, 
you can't rely on incrementalism or step-by-step progress within an approach like critical race theory, that you have to have true transformative change or revolutionary change. That's what they're referring to. We have to dismantle the existing system and rebuild the current one. Many participants said the mentorship and training for agency leaders would be critical in this work, especially around reorganizing white privilege and white culture. Re, or sorry, recognizing white privilege and white culture, since leaders cannot dismantle the, destruct, the, the structures they cannot see. So this is, again, my claim that neo-Marxism, which is also called critical theory, underlies all of DEI, is incredibly important to understand. Their core rationale is we must completely remake the system to a completely new one that we will oversee with our ideology, which begins with the idea that people who are privileged by the existing system can't see or dismantle the problems in the structure. That is straight neo-Marxism. If you like neo-Marxism, you're welcome to like this. But you can't deny that it is what it is. If you realize that neo-Marxism is bad, then you shouldn't like what's passing as DEI. Remember, this is the statement from a legislatively en enacted task force that's turned into a permanent office in the state of Washington with the authority of the governor and the legislature behind it. This isn't like, you know, somebody who makes some tractors in Kansas. So it's not what you think you're signing up to when the DEI consultant comes in and tells you you probably have some liabilities and you never know, you gotta be careful because you might end up with a, with a civil rights lawsuit or diversity lawsuit and then you're gonna have to pay out, somebody's gonna get fired, they're gonna sue you for discrimination, blah, 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 and don't worry, you have all these vulnerabilities we just made up, I mean, diagnosed, and we also have a consulting program to tell you how to close all of them. It'll only cost you $25,000 a session twice a week for the next year or whatever, but don't worry, you're a corporate fat cat, you can afford it. Definitely not a grift. It's snake oil is what it is. We're gonna come sell you medicine for a disease you don't actually have based on liabilities that kind of do exist but it depends on the judge. It, they kind of do exist because of bad jurisprudence that we'll also talk about that lies underneath this. So this is actually big business though. What I was just saying was not, those numbers weren't really a joke. I just saw a thing that said that in 2020, diversity training alone, just training, not the, any of the accessory stuff was over $8 billion spent on it in the United States. This is an 11, when you start bringing in everything else, and I've seen stats going back in the eight to 10 billion range from 2013 for the whole industry. This is, I don't know what the real number for the whole industry and in diversity, equity, inclusion trainings is, but it's certainly 11 figures. We're in the tens of billions of dollars a year are being spent on what turns out to be a fraudulent product because the product has been corrupted and they know how to put it in a good package that doesn't look like it's corrupted. This is very big business. But it turns out that's small business compared to the really big business, and that's the relationship that DEI holds to, dare I say these words in public, these letters, E-S-G and S-D-Gs. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Scores. They are integral to how your company, if you own especially a big one, will have its assets managed. If you don't have a good ESG score, BlackRock and Vanguard won't take you. Goldman Sachs probably will not either, but they will send you a diversity consultant that you can make an officer in your company and raise your score. And if you get your ESG score high enough, then you can have your assets managed. Then you can have access to other things. This is the manipulation that makes all of this move. Why is critical race theory everywhere? 
because of ESG. ESG is the linchpin between the cart and the horse. Critical race theory, all the garbage happening in our society, the DEI training at your work you don't want to go to, that's in the cart. There's something pulling the horse, but the pin is ESG. That's what's holding them together. Environmental, social, and governance scores for how you run your organization. And it has everything to do with whether or not you're going to qualify for money to be able to continue doing what you're doing. And we're not talking small money. We're talking literally trillions of dollars. We're talking in the 14 figures range when we start talking about people like BlackRock and Vanguard combined. It's like national government's budgets between them. What are SDGs? Sustainable Development Goals. That's what ESG serves. That's like the butt of the horse or maybe where the reins where it hooks onto the, I'm gonna get a tortured metaphor here. It's the whips. It's the whips on the horse, of course. Sustainability is kind of the big driving agenda behind all of this. ESGs are meant to, you get good environmental scores when you're being responsible and sustainable with regard to the environment. You get good social scores when you're doing DEI and being, making a sustainable and inclusive culture. You get a good governance score when you're organizing your company around these things and taking best practices put out by the same people who tell you how to run a sustainable company in this new technocratic world. So those are the part that, of the, the wagon that hooks to the horse. The horse is the people that had come up with all of this crap and are pushing it relentlessly with gigantic bags of cash, for lack of a better way to put it. And armies of activists that number probably just in the tens of thousands. Um, why is DEI such a big business, though? Well, it kind of has three components, one of which is in the post-civil rights era, there was a lot of hustling around this issue, the affirmative action thing, for example, but there's also legitimate liability questions that came up around the Civil Rights Act that needed to be answered. You need lawyers. So there's a the big component that it grew kind of organically there. Um, partly it's this neo-Marxist, neo-communist, I'll put it, push toward a new sustainable future. And I put the sus in sustainable on purpose. Sus meaning suspicious. These people really put the sus in sustainability. It's mostly not organic. It's mostly in its present form pushed by the people pushing things like sustainable development and ESG so that they can reorder the world and the corporate landscape from a what we would call shareholder model to a stakeholder model. And the stakeholders are going to be represented by these technocrats who know how to run everything so that the world won't burn itself up and people apparently won't fight with each other because if you give them enough critical race theory, they clearly get along better. So in other words, DEI is such a big industry mostly because it has been propped up to be a big industry. And then in the wake of things like George Floyd dying, when you have a moral panic going on, it becomes very easy to pull literally an extortion racket on companies, get them to implement this expensive crap just to cover their liability butts and um, again, propped up industry. What's really kind of going on? Well, sustainability is the thing I would call the, the watchword of neo-communism, which another word for that would be communo-fascism, which is this fusion of communism and fascism, which means communist ends, kind of like we see in China, with either a semi-open market or being achieved through market means. So where we see, for example, that the federal government in the United States can't do certain things, but they can lean on companies, like making you get vaccinated to get on an airplane or something. And then the companies say, oh, if you want to fly, there's only really three or four big carriers. If you want to fly with us, well, we all require vaccines. So whoops, looks like there's a de facto mandate that the government couldn't actually make, 
but they can make, and all of a sudden the corporations did the dirty work. Or we can't censor you because of the First Amendment, but Twitter can ban you because they're a private company and they can do what they want. They call this thing a public-private partnership, which if you've studied your Mussolini, you know means fascism. If he could define it in a single word, it would be corporatism that he then said would fuse with the state. But it's going to have this equity component under the S of ESG. So there's going to be redistribution involved because that's what equity is about. Therefore, it's communism and fascism together. If that sounds like something you like to bring into the world, please carry on bringing it into the world. But if you realize that's a terrible idea, it's time to fight. This is being wedged not on old Marxist theory. Neo-communism is not communism. It's a new thing. It's not following even neo-Marxism technically. It's following what I refer to as identity Marxism, which is where we've stopped doing the corporatist and cultural analyses of the middle of the 20th century and moved into the identity politics realm. The lines of stratification are racial, sexual, gender, etc. not so much rich and poor, which is very convenient if you're rich. And you want the poor people fighting with each other about what they look like instead of being mad at you for screwing them over, say, in 2008, and then getting bailed out for it. The idea of neo-Marxism, I already kind of touched on it, was to adjust Marxism for advanced capitalism, which has solved the trust problem, which is not alienating and destroying workers, but actually enabling them to build a better life. It's enabling money as it floats up to the top, as it tends to do, because people spend money, and they spend money, and it goes up to a bigger and bigger corporations, it floats up to the top. The middle class is where it kind of gets to hang out on its way up. The upper middle class, it hangs out a little longer. And some people who are up here, they don't want it to hang out there. They want those people to get squashed and the juice to all go to the top real fast. And that's really kind of the picture. Identity Marxism is the tool that's trying to do this. With communism, those people were the vanguard, Lenin's party. They were ultra-rich, lavish parties that were famous in Moscow during the Holodomor while the Ukrainians starved. And uh, Walter Durante wrote the article at one, after leaving one of Stalin's parties, probably, for the New York Times that won a Pulitzer, Ukrainians hungry, not starving. They still have that Pulitzer at the New York Times. They did not disclaim it. It was covering up one of the worst genocides in history. They still have that Pulitzer. You talk about a shameless organization. Would have been so easy to disclaim that. Whoops, that was real bad. We're out. No, they still have it. Identity Marxism works differently, though. It sees a ton of different identity factors. It sees a ton of different identity factors. And it says every one of these has a power dynamic. And so... The differences between you and me as man and woman, the differences between you and me as white and whatever, and you, the differences between you and me and gay and straight, and the differences, these are the things where power really exerts itself and holds people down. And it's like that famous cartoon with the big guy with a big bag of money over his shoulder and pointing at the one guy and said, you know, that guy's going to take, he's, one guy's got a dollar and there's another guy sitting there and he's like, the immigrant's going to take your dollar and he's got like, you know, $80 million in his backpack. It's that game. It's how do you get those two people who are on the lower end fighting with each other economically. So identity Marxism shifts the frame out of economics into identity. And it turns out identity is a very dangerous place to put people fighting because you can't resolve it. There is no resolution to a difference in identity. If your, your theory, like critical race theory holds, is that white people and black people genuinely cannot understand one another because the power dynamics shape their lives so profoundly differently that they are not able to comprehend one another at all, you have no resolution to the conflict 
that the conflict theory of Marxism generates between those people. And if those people are fighting, they're not paying attention to the person robbing them. That's how Occupy Wall Street died. They sent in the woke and got them fighting about their privilege with whiteness or straight privilege or male privilege. And all of a sudden their solidarity against Wall Street got dysfunctional and fell apart. Neo-communism is named liberation by the neo-Marxists. Liberation from all axes of oppression, all possible systemic power. Not just rich versus poor, but all the racial, all the sexual, all the axes of, of systemic power that you could possibly imagine, all the identity ones and identity Marxism, all the cultural ones and cultural Marxism. Liberation from all oppression, also liberation from work, also liberation from reality itself in some cases. Uh, if you read Herbert Marcuse, who wrote an essay on liberation in 1969, that's how he describes it. He actually also describes it as socialism without the bureaucracy. Because the bureaucracy is what made the Soviet Union bad, apparently. What it really boils down to, though, is oligarchical technocracy by hyper-elites who are going to order the world to be environmentally, socially, and in governance responsible as they see it, which means, in many cases, to do a critical theory of them in their own benefit. This will include, though, under the S, redistribution across every axis of oppression named by neo-Marxism. That will be determined by the people who get to be the representatives of stakeholders. So you'll have some stakeholder speaks up or stakeholder has determined or stakeholder. This is some, some bureaucrat who's been given power to speak for the black people. This is some bureaucrat who's been given power to speak for the gays. This is some bureaucrat who's been given power to say, well, this will implement, you know, this will cause greater disparity in Brazil than in North America. And so there's, a, there's an imbalance between North and South or an imbalance between West and East. This is what they are. The tool isn't exactly Marxism. It's Marxism that's modified into cultural, then neo, and then identity Marxism. But it's the same ideological engine underneath it, which I've named in an essay. If you ever want to read it, it's on New Discourses called Scientific Gnosticism that features, features identity politics as the new science, race science, as gross as that sounds, gender science, etc. None of it's science. It's all crackpot sociology posing as science. Um, but like I said, this isn't actually a fusion of communism and fascism into a new thing. It is a communist redistribution scheme being run by a fascist corporatism in an oligarchical structure where the technocrats who run the oligarchy at the administrative level are called stakeholders or stakeholder representatives. Stakeholder capitalism, y'all. It's not very capitalistic. They're technocrats. Um, what this boils down to is that there's all obviously going to be this big revolving door. What, is what does this corporate fascism look like? There's a revolving door between states, corporations, and NGOs where big players in each of those get positions in the other thing. And, you know, so you have your people who work at the FDA or former, former high levels at Pfizer or whatever. I don't want to name any particular company. But you end up and then, you know, or the, the more classical one, you know, there's a lawsuit against Harvard, but all the judges were Harvard grads, so they got to protect Harvard, and, you know, that, that keeps happening because um, they're a Harvard man before they're a American, apparently. And that's really how all this kind of works. Um, why does all this happen? It, because ESG, and so therefore DEI give them crazy access to power. It works. That's why. Um, do they really care about DEI or even ESG? Who knows? 
Some of them probably, some of them don't, but the divide and power or divide and conquer power that it gives them is, is, is amazing. It also provides corporations that are doing shady stuff, say like Disney, you know, maybe filming a movie right next to a concentration camp and then being nice to the CCP the whole time and, you know, doing shady stuff. It gives them a nice moral cover. No, we care about all kinds of social issues. Look how high our S score is in ESG. <laughs> We're really diverse. No, pay, pay no attention to the concentration camp behind Mulan. If you want to read more about that moral cover argument and actually some of this other stuff, I recommend my friend Vivek Ramaswamy's book, Woke Inc. If you haven't read this, to understand how this stuff works in the corporate world, you must. It's a wonderful read. So that's kind of a big picture. We'll narrow back in. Um, D&I, diversity and inclusion, are actually meant to establish the, the key official players in the neo-communist cultural revolution that we're taking part in. In other words, D&I, diversity and inclusion, create the commissariat. They use a tool that communists have used for, for century called entryism to do it. Inclusion becomes a justification to get rid of problematic people, so you have firings, and then when you rehire more people to fill their positions, you have a diversity hiring policy in place that only hires friendlies. That's how they do it. Abolish the police. Force the vaccine. A bunch of people quit. A bunch of people leave. Who do you, who do you think when the crisis comes they have to hire more that they're going to bring in? People who are already compliant. That's called entryism. It is a communist strategy to take over institutions. Diversity and inclusion are entryism. Equity is the name of the proximate, this is a fancy difficult thing, proximate objective of establishing this party apparatus, and it's a capital P party. It's neo-socialism. Equity is neo-socialism. Justice, the J, when it's included, is the name of the distal objective or the consequence of sufficiently long and arduous equity policy. Uh, there's a reason for that we'll, we'll talk about more later. So equity is neo-socialism. This is a redistribution across these axes of power. Justice is when that becomes spontaneous and happens by itself without an administration to, or an institution that makes it happen. It's the parallel of communism, neo-communism, and the tool by which it's achieved is diversity and inclusion which is a entryism technique. The DEI industry, I said, arose in the context legally of a few Supreme Court decisions and some big state court decisions. I'm only going to kind of cover these in detail later, but I'm going to just briefly, briefly mention them. Uh, for diversity, there was Regents of the University of California versus Backey in 1978, which I already mentioned. It actually ruled that quotas are illegal, but pursuing diversity as an educational end is legal. So you can have race-conscious admissions in colleges as long as the goal is to increase diversity for educational purposes, which they said that the colleges did have a stake in because it actually improves educational outcomes to be more diverse. But Justice Powell, who rendered that the, the primary decision on that, or wrote the primary opinion for that decision, pointed out a very different kind of equity, a very, very different kind of diversity than, than we, would, we would see today. The second one is Grutter versus Bollinger, 2003. Three, that was the University of Michigan case, and that actually reified Backey and said that underrepresented minorities do represent diversity, and it went on base, uh, based on what was called a critical mass argument, that in order to have the educational benefits of diversity, you have to have a sufficient number of diverse people, or else they are just tokens. And so all of a sudden you can see kind of where they got quotas in the back door. Uh, the, for equity, the two biggest cases were Griggs versus Duke Power in 1971. This is going to be confusing in a minute because there's a guy named 
Griggs that's not the same Griggs who it's important to. It's not even a common name. I mean, come on. Griggs versus Duke Power ruled that disparate impact can sometimes be used as proof of discrimination, even if there's no intention. Differences in outcomes equal discrimination must have happened, even if you can't prove intention. That was the big picture of that. And then that got kind of followed up in 1979 with United Steelworkers versus Weber. And that actually ended up ruling that women and historically oppressed minorities can actually be intentionally favored in race conscious or sex conscious hiring to make up for uh, past differences. And then there was a big argument on the court as to whether past differences had a statute of limitations or if they would be indefinite. Inclusion actually arose mostly out of uh, special education. Although inclusion education started in gender, inclusion as a program started with special education is basically, the question was that you had special ed kids, and I don't wanna get too deep into it yet, but how do you get, how do you deal with the fact that if you put them in a special ed classroom where their special needs are being met, then you're technically segregating them, which is an issue. But if you integrate them into the classroom, integration doesn't work because of their special needs. So you need some other third way that's neither integration nor segregation. And inclusion, which is some just complicated buzzword, does, we're gonna just integrate them and pretend we make it work, was what started that. Um, that was mostly backed up originally by some significant state-level court cases, especially in the state of New York, uh, but it spread from there into other domains, as, as you can imagine. Um, diversity and inclusion also arose in the California, state of California's ethnic studies mandate program. The universities of California have been mandated to do something with ethnic studies since the 1970s or 60s, maybe, I think 60s. And um, that just got reified into law that all the schools have to do an ethnic studies curriculum now. I think Newsom just signed that. Uh, so D&I, diversity and inclusion, have a lot of their basis. The thought is based in kind of the ethnic studies multiculturalism approach. So just so I don't look like a total jerk now that I've called it communism like 85 times, DEI might be okay if it were actually focusing on actual goals of diversity, including people who should be not you know, made to feel awful for, for whatever's going on and uh, creating good outcomes that people find fair within the workplace, which is the packaging they sell it to you with. But that those positive benefits um, are limited to when you do them responsibly and they are not occurring under the current programs. Um, you have to have a very narrow understanding of diversity, or a very functional, I should say, understanding of diversity and inclusion and a very narrow understanding of equity for those things to work out. And what we have is the exact opposite of that. We have a very uh, dysfunctional, purposed, and ideological definition of diversity and inclusion underneath these trainings and a very broad definition of equity, which is redistribution rather than dealing with genuine issues of access. And that's, that's a, a key idea there. Um, I say that, that it could be okay, it could be good, but it's unfortunate, a lot of this diversity, equity, inclusion, all three of these three big ideas arose within contexts that were already heavily populated by new left activists and scholars and academics coming out of the 1960s going into the 1970s. So it already arose in a context that wasn't necessarily neo-Marxist, though sometimes it was, but was already heavily influenced by neo-Marxist thought, because if you don't know about this new left that emerged in the late 1960s, it's intellectual father was the grand critical theorist of the 1960s, Herbert Marcuse. And so you're talking about literally Mr. Seriously Crazy Neo-Marxist, we must get liberation by biologically changing humanity to be ready for socialism. That's 
chapter one of An Essay on Liberation, by the way, if you haven't read that joyful book. Um, I did a podcast where I read through it for you in four parts, so you can read, you can listen to me read it to you and yell about it. I get really mad a couple times. Uh, that milieu was already informing the progressives, even if they're on the liberal side of the aisle instead of the Marxist side of the aisle, who were formulating all of DE&I from the beginning. And so we have to understand neo-Marxism and new leftism a little bit. The key ideas are power dynamics, material and structural determinism form everything. There are power dynamics like systemic racism that structure society and the material and structural, which is a very vague word, uh, impacts of those determine the character of people. So where Martin Luther King says something like that we shouldn't judge by color, we should judge by character, they would say that our character has been shaped by the exact power dynamics that judge by color, so that's not even possible. Character's already corrupted. Character must be unpacked. And as we'll see, whites have to be re-educated, for example, as part of that. Um, if you don't understand that that's the ground in which this grows, you don't understand DEI and application, you don't understand what's happening in your company, you don't understand what's happening in your society. Uh, but you have to learn to think like they do in order to understand it and reject it. In other words, you have to understand that when they say diversity, it's diversity as understood as somebody who only thinks in terms of power dynamics would understand diversity. When they say inclusion, it's as somebody who only things in power dynamics would understand inclusion. When they say equity, it's how would you redistribute across people, across axes that are understood in a way that only people who are obsessed with power dynamics as the key, under, key facet of how all of society works, how would they redistribute things? That's equity. So if you understand it, then you can be discerning. You understand that they're thinking in terms of power dynamics. They say, we need a more diverse workforce. They don't mean we need people who look different. They mean people who have critical theory of whatever their color or sexuality is in larger numbers because that's the only true diversity for them because the power dynamic shapes how the people think. And so a brown woman has a very particular set of power dynamics that shapes how she thinks, not just about you know her experiences in life, her, what you really call lived experiences, but also apparently how everything should be done, how physics works. To take it, or math as a rather extreme example, but there is an ethnomathematics requirement in the California Ethnic Studies curriculum in all three West Coast states right now, so even math. To give you an idea of how this goes, I'm going to read a, a quick piece from the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education. Uh, it's a wonderful book. They say that traditional mainstream approaches to education, so we can kind of sub in diversity and inclusion as, as we need to, but traditional mainstream approaches to education tend to imagine the history of policy as a series of incremental steps leading gradually toward improved attainments and ever greater degrees of equity and social inclusion. Critical perspectives, critical means, critical theory means neo-Marxism. Critical perspectives, however, view policy very differently. Critical race theory views policy not as a mechanism that delivers progressively greater degrees of equity, but a process that is shaped by the interests of the dominant white population, a situation where genuine progress is won through political protest and where apparent gains are quickly cut back. So they are running a program, progress according to the critical race perspective for them is one that it is racial minorities acting in protest against the white population that can't even see its privilege. In other words, conflict theory across race. Hello, race Marxism or identity Marxism. And they win by protesting and acting the fool or in clownish forms as, as Herbert Marcuse put it, rejecting the very foundations of a functioning society. 
and then they expect that the dominant powers are gonna then cut back all of their wins like they did with affirmative action. That's how the, the background of their thought is. It's all power dynamics based in race. They explicitly even said, it's not a mechanism that delivers progressively greater degrees of equity, policy isn't, but a process that is shaped by the interests of dominant white populations. That's how they think about everything. If you don't understand that when they say diversity, it's couched in that, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand what you're getting rolled with. You don't understand the Trojan horse at your front door, as I've put it at other times. They name specifically equity and social inclusion being the goals of this way of thinking. So they've taken over. They've colonized what would have been profitable and useful DEI to whatever degree it might be useful, and they've turned it into this identity Marxist bullshit, not to put too fine a point on it. So you have to understand that everything they do is in terms of what they call critical perspectives, which means applying the neo-Marxist lens to everything. You, if you don't understand that, you don't understand what they're doing. You don't understand what you're bringing into your company, what you're putting into your kids, what's happening at the school. You don't understand it. The early pioneers of the industry clearly show this mentality. We can look at Patricia Bidall, who went by Pat, I think, at American University. She was a feminist in the 70s who was taking on the neo-Marxist perspective toward feminism. Uh, she had taken on a lot of the kind of identity politics views. She got very moved, in fact, by the race question that neo-Marxism was raising under Herbert Marcuse's order to go radicalize the ghetto population, as he phrased it. And she wrote in 1970 kind of the landmark book that is kind of, I've unfortunately not read this book because I can't find this book. I've only been able to read a summary of it. Uh, it's called Developing New Perspectives on Race, 1970 is when it was written. That's where the prejudice plus power definition of racism was invented, that book. That's her that did it. In that book, she also explains that you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. So this is the mentality behind the entire diversity, equity, and inclusion industry. This is the first book. You're either in a, she explicitly says, you think this is fancy 2019 stuff? You're either a racist or you're an anti-racist. There is no neutral. 1970. This is the precursor to all of critical whiteness studies, which is the element where we have to criticize and awaken the white population to its complicity in evil. It presages Ibram X. Kendi's nonsense, How to Be an Anti-Racist book. It actually characterizes explicitly white racism as a mental disorder akin to or maybe identical to a type of schizophrenia and says that it should be treated as such. She went on to write another uh, manual, it's not quite a book, called Racism in Education in 1973. This is still Pat Bidall. Um, that book in 1973, you'll be excited to know, was formulated in 71 and 72 in conjunction with the NEA, the Teachers Union, which then distributed it widely to teachers in 1973, to teacher education schools. The Teachers Union, the NEA, which is now fighting for critical race theory to be kept in schools while simultaneously and sometimes the same document saying it's not there anyway, but it must be kept there, and they'll defend any teacher who gets in trouble for teaching it, even though it's not there, was distributing racism in education and helping to develop the book Racism in Education from this person who said that racism is a form of schizophrenia and that you're either a racist or an anti-racist or you're either part of the problem or part of the solution, one or the other, in 1970. So they distributed this book. 
other than rehashing the ideas in her 1970 work, the book is uh, as a manual is, is, is suggesting different tools you can use. Kind of the biggest one is that we do, it's still in the 70s. It's not quite so radical as we see now. So we don't need to destroy existing cultural symbols like Christmas, etc. But what we do need to do is fill in with other cultural symbols. We need to bring in. I think they mentioned you know like other holidays from other traditions, whether it's Hanukkah, Kwanzaa gets mentioned. I don't even know if that's real. I've read something and I no longer know. Uh, but basically bringing in other cultural traditions and to create a true multicultural goal. That was very hot in the 70s. Everything was going to be very multicultural. Um, it wasn't quite the Robin D'Angelo coming straight out and saying there's no such thing as a positive white identity on page 149 of white uh, fragility. Um, a positive white identity cannot exist. Followed up after Baidal, one of her protégés um, was Judith Katz, an educational doctorate who was at the uh, University of Oklahoma, I guess Oklahoma University in Norman, uh, through most of the 70s and the 80s. She was another feminist. She was adapting Baidal's work for other proto-critical race theory radicals. She was pulled on Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael for this book that she wrote called White Awareness in 1978. White Awareness is a gem of a book. I have read that a couple of times. Um, it's so similar in certain parts to White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo that I went and checked multiple times in both White Fragility, the paper, and White Fragility, the book, to see if this Judith Katz gets cited. Weird that it's not there because it smells an awful lot like plagiarism to me. There are parts that are so shockingly similar, especially in the prefaces, that it's almost unbelievable. Katz was active in the field of human relations, which... I confess in my ignorance, I had to look that up. I thought it was fake. It turns out to be a subdomain of human resources. I thought they were playing some HR, HR game, like, you know, like critical race theory is CRT, but also culturally responsive teaching is CRT. So no, we don't teach that CRT, we teach the other one. It's not regular HR, it's some new HR. No, it turns out it's part of the real HR. So she was a, she was a human relations expert at, uh, at Oklahoma. In her book from 78, the terms diversity and inclusion worth pointing out, do not appear, but the word equity does three times. That's it, just three. So this is very new stuff by 19, in the 1970s. Uh, it's not coming up. But she's also a big fan of white re-education. Uh, I'll read to you from Judith Katz, and I'll tell you why you know who Judith Katz is without knowing that you know who Judith Katz is. Um, the overall objectives of the program, meaning the book, White Awareness, and the training program, the book is actually, a, it's like, three short chapters of stuff, and then like 62 exercises you can drag people through to indoctrinate them into a cult. I mean, it's actually kind of creepy to read the exercises. They're very cult indoctrination. Um, they generate vulnerability and then provide people with a pathway through doctrine out of that vulnerability. Um, repeatedly. It looks just like diversity training today, but this is 1978. The overall objectives of the program are to help whites become aware of how racism affects their lives and to help them change their racist attitudes and behaviors. The program strives to help whites understand that racism in the United States is a white problem and that being white implies being racist. Remember how they told us all summer that that's not a thing in critical race theory? <laughs> Wrong. And that being white implies being racist. Is that ambiguous to anybody what that means? This is the, the ER book for diversity training, by the way. That let me read that part again. That being white implies being racist. That's what diversity training teaches. This is the first book that really advocates the first diversity training book. 
that being white implies being racist. Core idea. This understanding is achieved most successfully through one, confrontation, identifying the discrepancies that exist between what one says and what one does, and two, a re-education process, examining history and perspectives through a new perceptual filter, which came to be called critical race theory 11 years later. If participants can recognize the inconsistencies between ideologies and behaviors at institutional and cultural levels, they can better understand how their own attitudes and behaviors have been permeated by racism. Told you, it sounds just like Robin DiAngelo. Once whites become aware of this dimension, they will more easily own their racism and develop ways to combat it. Whites need to be re-educated. They have grown up in a system that has ingrained in them racist ideologies and attitudes. They need to be in a trusting climate in which they can strip away some of these old ideologies and perceptions and become open to the realities of racism cognitively and emotionally. This will enable them to understand themselves better as white people, as well as to explore their role in combating racism in American society. So this is the first book on diversity training. Kind of a gem, isn't it? Funny, though, because where I just said that Robin D'Angelo says there's no such thing as a positive white identity on page 149 of White Fragility, Judith Katz in the next paragraph after what I've stopped quoting here says that white people should not be shamed and should have a way to find a positive white identity. So that's Robin D'Angelo's contribution to this book she more or less plagiarized, which is to um, make it so that white people can never be happy. That's her contribution to the literature. Katz wrote a very influential article in 1989 called The Challenge of Diversity. As this has been 11 years since her manual came out, she's trying to put it out. It rehashes the book. It got summarized down into a very short article the next year in 1990 that turned out to be, and this is how you know her, Judith Katz, who you've probably never heard of. If you saw that infographic that the Smithsonian Museum put out last summer, that said what white culture is, where it said things like hard work and punctuality and having a family or something like that, that's all white culture, that's white supremacy. There's only one source cited on that infographic, if you can find the one that has the citation at the bottom, the original one, Judith Katz. That's who is behind that document. So is her book from 78 relevant still? Well, the Smithsonian National, what is it? The National, the Museum, National Museum of African American History um, and Culture or something like that put it out last year, immediately had public outcry, tried to take it down, but of course the, the whole internet saved it on, in one day. And so they couldn't quite get away from it. So how do you know that that's cats? I'll read to you from her 89 essay, The Challenge of Diversity, kind of at length a little bit. I'll try to not drag this part out, but just to give you a taste. White culture results from a synthesis of ideas, values, and beliefs inherited from European ethnic groups in the United States. As the dominant one, white culture acts as the foundation of, foundation of our organizations and social institutions by dictating its norms. That's identity Marxism, by the way. By understanding white culture, one can begin to see how it has become the basis for institutional norms, and yet people of color are expected to feel valued and comfortable within these systems. U.S. institutions need to, con need to consider how their systems would operate if white culture were not the only legitimate one. I'm not sure who's saying that, but she believes it. Table 1 outlines the basic elements of white culture. Again, keep in mind that infographic, whatever you can remember of it, blue, white, red a little bit. Um, Rugged individualism. The individual is a primary unit. Individual has primary responsibility. Independence and autonomy are highly valued and rewarded. Individual can, can control his environment. That's white culture. 
competition. Winning is everything. There's a win-loss dichotomy. As Orange Man once said, it's not whether you win or lose, it's whether you win. <laughs> I think that's my favorite quote. <laughs> An action orientation must master and control nature, must always do something about a situation. You know, just don't let stuff fall to shit, you know, whatever. <laughs> Pragmatic, utilitarian view of life. Protestant work ethic. Working hard brings success. Hard work is white culture. Progress and future orientation. Plan for the future. Delayed gratification. Value continual improvement in education. These are white culture. Let me remind you that. These aren't values that people might want to aspire to. These are the characteristics of white culture that needs to be dismantled. Emphasis on the scientific method, objective, rational, linear thinking, cause and effect relationships, quantitative emphasis and dualistic thinking. Status and power, measured by economic possessions. It's all about the Benjamins. By a very famous white guy. Accelerate the contradictions, comrade. I'm sassy. Family structure. Nuclear family is the ideal family social unit. Man is the breadwinner and head of the household. I told you she was a feminist. Woman is a homemaker and subordinate to the husband. Patriarchal structure. That's white culture. Remember, this is white culture. Patriarchy is white culture. I don't think that Judith Katz knew very many black families in the 70s. <laughs> Just guessing. Communication, standard English, written tradition, direct eye contact, limited physical contact, controlled emotions. Time, adherence to a rigid time schedule. Time is viewed as a commodity, therefore punctuality is white supremacy culture. Holidays, based on the Christian religion, based on white history and male leaders. History, based on European immigrants' experience in the United States, romanticized war. That's what white people do with history. Aesthetics, music and art based on European cultures, women's beauty based on blonde, blue-eyed, thin, and young. Told you she was a feminist. Men's attractiveness based on athletic ability. Yes, it is. Power, indeed, and economic status. I mean, yes. Please send checks and make it true. Religion, belief, and Christianity. That's white culture. Wasn't... Martin Luther King of Reverend? It's slightly ignorant. No tolerance from deviations from a single God concept. So that's Judith Katz. She's big. Re-education of whites. That's what you think about with her. And that, yeah, they used her to make that thing at the Smithsonian last year. Lewis Griggs, he's this MBA huckster guy. HR, he turns out to be considered a pioneer. I didn't know who this guy was. He's in the Diversity Officer magazine, it turns out. He was an HR consultant in the 80s. Allegedly, I haven't followed up on this. This is what Diversity Officer magazine says, which is a poorly written, I mean, very well written publication. Apparently, Lewis Griggs coined the idea of diversity and inclusion. That's his catchphrase, diversity and inclusion, something you're going to sell together. And he invented the training industry with that branding. So he's the guy who branded diversity and inclusion in the early 1980s. He did so because he wondered as an American if he was being ethnocentric, and he wanted to find a way to overcome that in an increasingly globalizing market. Um, 
And he worked in a milieu apparently because he said that he ran his idea by some black guy and that he knew and the black, his black friend, you know, you, you know that's a thing. The, the, his black friend told him that society wasn't ready to be challenged with diversity and inclusion. So you know he's running in a very progressive left milieu because nobody else was really having huge problems with that necessarily by the 80s, late 80s in particular. Um, it's modern prophets for diversity and inclusion are primarily like Robin DiAngelo, the Critical Whiteness Studies crew. We might name some diversity trainers big in the industry like Howard Ross, who's I think been exposed by Chris Rufo as like a gigantic fraud of some kind or another, but do check that. Tim Wise, um, who's very salty on Twitter, um, very thorny individual, not very wise. Um, I have a number of people who, talk, who send me lots of things that he says in my, my messages on Twitter, and they often call him Tim Fool. Uh, in equity, though, the big thought leader's name is H. George Fredrickson. And this kind of grew in a separate sort of domain. The DEI industry is almost entirely understood in neo-Marxist terms because of the doors opened by these people, but including H. George Fredrickson. I'm going to talk about Fredrickson here some more in a minute, but he was a guy that was in public administration, and he coined the idea of social equity theory in 1968. So he's kind of the big thought leader there. Um, today, because of the way that the neo-Marxists infiltrate things, like institutional things, and take them over from within, which was Antonio Gramsci's idea of creating a counter-hegemony within any existing structure so that you can overturn it and make communism happen. Uh, virtually all DEI is on neo-Marxist terms and identity Marxist terms. So DEI is using neo-Marxism in the workplaces, in the schools and so on, in order to institute neo-communist policy, DEI is the vehicle that makes it happen. Like I said earlier, it infects bureaucracies, it's built directly on top of a bureaucratic engine Fredrickson was in, was in public policy, public administration. These other people were writing uh, HR manuals and uh, education manuals. Um, this is for a personal note, just so you can commiserate with me. I actually hate reading the DEI literature. I kind of got into reading the critical race theory, believe it or not. I don't like reading DEI because it's all in corporate gobbledygook speak. It's all corporate jargon. Um, so it's like layered in, but the point of that is that it's, it's truly a bureaucratic institutional beast. It, that's the petri dish in which this virus was grown. Uh, so a real diversity, equity, inclusion program in the ideal, what it should do is diversity should bring more expertise to the table, more information, more perspectives, make sure something's not getting overlooked. Real diversity means, as I said at the beginning, bringing together people with relevant but different expertise which might actually have something to do with culture. Sometimes cultural experts are a thing, but often does not. It might be bringing together a geologist and a physicist to answer a question about rocks. It has nothing to do with what you look like. So in an ideal situation, it's bringing more expertise together from different perspectives. Equity is about bringing perceived fairness, especially when there's real discrimination or a genuinely unlevel playing field. In other words, a genuine dis discrepancy in access. Handicapped people have genuine discrepancies in access and nobody blinks an eye that we put sidewalk inserts for the blind, that the button you pushed across the street makes a noise, that there's handicapped parking spaces enforced by expensive fines if you park in them. We've created equity where there is a genuine difference in access, a ramp, an elevator. We have created 
equity in workplaces for good reasons where there's a genuine discrepancy in access. This brings up what I will refer to as the access versus outcomes dichotomy, and the entire equity industry under neo-Marxism plays in that dichotomy. It equivocates between them. Psychological safety is the point of inclusion. Neo-Marxist diversity, equity, inclusion, on the other hand, exists to prepare environments for the neo-Marxist or neo-communist way of thinking. It introduces the systemic way of thinking about power dynamics with everything that's to operationalize the environment. It will genuinely inform, we heard from the military experience, genuinely inform some people who tend to normally be a somewhat of a minority who were incidentally, without realizing it, they were actually inadvertently participating in, you know, insensitive or bigotry or, you know, whatever, have insensitivity or bigotry or whatever. So those people get informed. It's awakening, however, in the neo-Marxist perspective, they're coming at it from an angle of unconscious bias and false consciousness. They believe that everybody can't really see. The white people can't see because of their privilege. It's also to familiarize people with the ideas in your workplace, the mere exposure effect. If you've heard about something 30 times, you're more likely to be positive to it, even if you don't know what it is. It's to create those fanatics, because those people are going to be your next commissars, the people who can't leave diversity, equity, inclusion, racism, et cetera, alone. You might only make three of them in a huge corporate training of hundreds of people of your employees, but now you've got three fanatics in your own company that don't want to do anything else and think every resource that's not dedicated to the DEI project is a wasted resource. They're going to become problems right away. Also is doing cult grooming on those people. Those become fanatics because they've been put through a cult grooming that's stuck. They become cultists into the DEI program. It's also, therefore, to recruit and install comrades in, com in a commissary. That's your diversity officers, your inclusion officers, your bias response teams, and so on, who are going to govern your company so you can get a good G score and S score on your ESG uh, in a way that makes sure that it's compliant with DEI beliefs. It's going to also identify and demoralize dissidents who don't want to have to sit through these stupid trainings or who speak up at them. They will eventually be censored or purged. It's to redistribute resources according to the subjective whims of the party apparatus taking control, and it is actually to polarize the environment, to guarantee that when an incident comes up, you will have divide and conquer. So one person accidentally says something racist by the water cooler or over the Zoom, and the next thing you know, it's not like there's an HR incident. The whole company is at civil war on the Slack channel, fighting over whether it's reasonable or unreasonable, racist or not racist, which side you're on. That's what the neo-Marxist DEI is for. The DEI training you probably brought into your company or had to suffer through at your company or whatever it happens to be, depending on who you are, is meant to polarize that environment and create fanatics and identify dissidents and do entryism and reorganize the company to do equity projects. Not to serve customers, not to meet needs, not to do the best job possible, but to create a culture war internally so that nothing else can be done and to increasingly shift control to people who want diversity, equity, inclusion to be the point of everything. These things are obviously opposites. You do not get psychological safety, which is the point of inclusion if this is what you're doing. You do not increase at different points of expertise. You get a bunch of people who have the same politics who happen to look different for diversity. You don't create fairness in terms of access that improves the situation that's going on in the sense of fairness, you create, in fact, unfairness that demoralizes people and wastes resources. It's the exact opposite. You can see that. The Bible says that you should judge a tree by its fruits. I think Jesus said that, actually. It's good wisdom. 
You can see that when you look at what happens in real DEI trainings, I've heard thousands of reports of these. I've read lots of whistleblower reports too. Um, and maybe just a couple to touch on in, college, in high schools are removing advanced courses, advanced placement courses, et cetera. They're getting rid of standardized testing in workplaces. They're getting, uh, it's a great example this, this gay individual sent me where they did a diversity training specifically around the fact that he was gay that came up at the, univer at the workplace. And then for after having to listen to all, he sat where I sat, and you guys are all going to tell me how you don't like gay people and how you think it's weird. And then for months afterwards, people came to his office to ask him about his sex life and to describe it and how do you guys do it. It did not improve sensitivity in the workplace. I get race examples. A, a Indian American woman contacted me about her brown fragility training, which is an offshoot of white fragility, where... She sat, kind of all the brown people had to sit in the hot seat, and then all the other people had to tell, the, all the white people on this side of the room told them how the, they've been racist against brown people, and then they all had to take their turn and confess how they were racist against black people. Talk about a happy working environment to be in after that. Literally, you're having people confess their racism to one another at work. Yeah, you know, we've worked together for three years, and I've always secretly hated people that look like you. And how do you think they're going to get along in the future? How do you think the workplace environment's going to be? Not very genuinely inclusive. It's going to be a hostile working environment. It's tempting to say this is a result of bad theory being put into practice, but the theory is working exactly as it should. Neo-Marxism is an evil theory. It's not a failed theory. It's important to know the difference. I'm going to kind of, I already sort of laid out, I have the here that I wanted in my notes, I was going to go over neo-Marxism and how it, how it, what it really is, but I'm going to skip down, I'm going to touch on a couple of points, structural material determinism, power-based systemic thinking I already talked about, master-slave dialectic is another one, they actually want this racial division because they think if the contradictions between race arise, then what will be forced to happen is a, what they call a dialectical process that finds some synthetic answer to that discrepancy. Rather than teaching people to get along by saying, putting their, their views in a, in a superordinate position, like, you know, we all work here together, we're all Google people or whatever the company happens to be, we're all Americans, we're all Tennesseans or whatever, or in Florida, I guess. Um, when in Florida, we're all Floridians. Um, rather than doing that, uh, the goal is actually to make that conflict happen and to generate some middle ground mixture between the sides of the conflict. Uh, the original phrasing for that came from Rousseau and was savages made to live in cities. It, they don't phrase it that way anymore, but Jean-Jacques Rousseau did 250 years ago. Uh, that's a very important idea. They use linguistic manipulations. Like I said, diversity doesn't mean diversity. It means diversity of structurally authentic opinions. So if you're black, you have a structurally determined by the power structures black experience. So we need somebody who has critical race theory and understands what that authentically looks like as a black to come give the critical black perspective. We need the same from a critical Asian perspective. We need the same from a critical Latinx perspective. We need the same from a critical gay perspective. We need the same from a critical dis disabled perspective. But it's all critical, 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 critical every time. Different identities, same critical theory. The only difference is which identity politic they're doing. So diversity means conformity. Equity plays off of the access versus outcomes trick. This is where we get into 
kind of Ibram Kendi, but the idea is that they say that they're working for equal access, which people agree with, but in, gen in truth, what they do is they evaluate according to outcomes. And they say if the outcomes are different, the access must have been different because all people are equal. So it must have been the access that was the problem, or the program itself has structural racism built into it if outcomes come out differently. So therefore, we have to change access again. So we're going to get rid of SATs. So we're going to get rid of advanced placement classes. So we're going to adjust access in, in whatever way. We're going to skew admissions. There's a specialist use of the term equality, and this is that shift from DEI to equity and anti-racism. If we listen to Ibram Kendi, I'll read part of his How to Fix Inequality from Politico magazine to fix the original sin of racism. Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the U.S. Constitution that enshrines two guiding anti-racist principles, which is misspelled, I'll point out again. And the two principles are racial inequity is evidence of racist policy and the different racial groups are equal. I won't continue reading this whole thing from him right now. We'll come back to it. Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy. That's his belief that he thinks should be mandated in the Constitution. If there's differences in outcome above a certain threshold, as he puts it, it must have been racism that's the cause and we have to use anti-racism to fix it. That's what equity is actually about. Access is measured in terms of outcomes. So they have a circular definition of access. So when they say equity is about equality of access, they mean outcomes because that's how they're measuring the access. And inclusion, it means exclusion. Exclusion of everything that creates the power dynamic that somebody who's in a protected class might not want to deal with. So that's DEI overall. I won't drag out equity, but let's specify a little bit about equity now. The main thing, when linguistic clarification is the main thing you have to take away from this about what equity is, we use the word equity as shorthand for Fredrickson's term social equity, which is a specific type of approach to thinking about equity. We'll talk about Fredrickson in detail in a minute. And that's being now done through a neo-Marxist lens or a critical theory lens. So what we're dealing with is what we're actually seeing in the equity realm of DEI is critical social equity. And if you remember that I said that equity is like socialism and justice is like communism. Critical social equity is the socialist phase where critical social justice is the communist phase. This relationship between socialism and communism is not totally understood, so I'll touch on this. Marx believed that history progresses according to kind of fixed scientific laws as he believed them to be. And it progresses through these stages, the fourth of which, I won't go through the whole progression, the fourth of these stages he believed was capitalism, where people have secured property rights. So he says the essence of communism is the abolition of private property in the second chapter of the Communist Manifesto. It's funny, my little funny anecdote about that is, I actually learned that looking back at the Communist Manifesto right after some tanky on Twitter told me that Marx never says anything about private property <laughs> at all. And I was like, what? You've got to be kidding me. So I opened up the Communist Manifesto and I type a keyword search, and it's like, literally, communism can be summarized in a single sentence, which isn't a sentence, by the way, abolition of private property. That's Marx on what communism is. So Marx thought that what would happen is that capitalism is full of contradictions, and so what you have to do is you bring in a new state where the the proletariat that's been awakened with its class consciousness seizes all the means of production, they seize the government, they take over everything, and they're going to create an administered state economy. That's socialism. That's going to, it's going to enforce communist outcomes 
intentionally. That's stage five of history, socialism. The proletariat will take everything over. They'll administer the outcome so that it all works out. We get equal distribution by force. And eventually, it will click, and people will get it. And then you don't need the state anymore, so the state with all the power will, of course, dissolve itself, being redundant, and communism will emerge. That's literally the belief. That's the relationship between socialism and communism. You force socialism long enough, and it administered dictatorship, and eventually people will get it, or all the ones who are still alive, and you will have a spontaneous socialist outcome state, which is now called communism, because you don't need the state to enforce it. You have a stateless, classless society. So socialism is the managed or administered state, and then we come back to the other part of Kendi's thing. We left off with racial inequity, the two principles. Racial inequity is evidence of racist policy, and the different racial groups are equals. The amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold, like I just said, as well as racist ideas by public officials. Racist ideas, the illegal by constitution. So the 20-whatever, I guess it would end up being 8th, ninth Amendment is going to be in conflict with the 1st, and I guess that's going to be fun for critical lawyers. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, DOA, comprised of formally trained experts in racism and no political appointees. Formally trained experts in racism means critical race theorists. It's what the equity, diversity, and inclusivity program at University of Texas Austin said was uh, people who are trained and formally skilled in diversity is who they were going to hire as diversity hires, commissars. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies, dictatorship, every level of the government, to ensure they won't yield racial inequity. Monitor those policies, investigate private racist, pol private racist policies when they re yield racial inequities. So if your company has any, and your private company, your church, whatever, watch out. Uh, and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. Dictatorship. The DOA would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policy and ideas. That's Ibram Kendi's idea. And we laugh because Ibram Kendi is dumb as rocks. And this is preposterous. Except that this is the racial version of exactly what Marx referred to as the dictatorship of the proletariat. This is the dictatorship of the anti-racists, D-O-A. It's exactly the same thing. So whether Kendi actually wrote this himself or not with a misspelling, probably, um, I don't know, but that's why this is socialism. That's your dictatorship of the, of the anti-racists that's going to enforce racial equity, and we will keep forcing racial equity, which is redistribution across racial lines, those axes of power, as they have defined them by terms like historically marginalized group, and we will continue to do that until it's just automatic, and then we will finally arrive at racial justice. You remember Derek Chauvin was convicted on three counts, and immediately Bernie Sanders, AOC, and half the other prominent Democrats and, and mouthpieces of the left went on and said, this is not justice. This is accountability. It's one step toward justice, but justice is a long way off. It's because justice means communism. When you force this on people long enough to where it becomes automatic, spontaneous. So equity becomes the name for neo-Marxist socialism. 
Socialism across all of the neo-Marxist axes of oppression, almost, because we already heard that there's some tension that the other ones don't foreground race. The way this is analyzed is through historically marginalized groups. This is a very important and dangerous term. You know why? You don't ever stop being historically marginalized. If your identity group was marginalized historically, no matter what you do, that's still true. It's a permanent justification for a biased system. Histor if you have a policy and you see blah, 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 historically marginalized groups, we're going to do favoritism for historically marginalized groups, they are always historically marginalized. What if, you know, the critical race theorists win and, you know, black supremacy takes over and everything goes crazy and, da, 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 and they have all the power and all that? You know, no, historically marginalized still. What if they're totally successful and there's no discrimination? Doesn't matter. Historically marginalized still. It is a carte blanche to continue to go forever with this program. For Equity Task Force in Washington, equity means disrupt and dismantle. They literally said that in their task force meeting in the beginning of 2020. Equity is disrupt plus dismantle. Then they argued for 15 minutes about whether they can put that in the document or if it would freak people out and they need to use sneakier language. That's on YouTube. You can watch it. It was a public meeting. Um, it's, not that, it's not terribly hard to find. Uh, they don't list it as it turns out. It did not make the final cut in the definition of equity that they proposed to the governor. But in the report, which is 140-something pages long or whatever, it turns out to be listed as the first principle of success for the equity task force of the state. What does it read? Disrupt and dismantle. They don't really mince words. Systems of institutional racism and oppression. That's the first principle of success. How do they describe it? Eliminating racism and oppression requires revolutionary change. The Office of Equity's work must be transformative. That means communist. It must disrupt and dismantle historical systems of institutional racism and oppression through every sector and layer of government. Dictatorship of the anti-racists. Agencies must systematically identify the harm and exclusions built into our current systems and take immediate action to undo these inequities. They forgot that urgency, sense of urgency, is also an aspect of white supremacy culture, by the way. They also say that either-or thinking is. I'll just point that out. Some of their other principles for success include to commit, to commit to equity at the highest levels of leadership. So in other words, to make sure that equity is relevant to everything, to redirect resources toward redistributing resources. Um, secondly, to properly invest in equity and inclusion. So give us money. Share power and resources with the community. Give us power operationalize equity and intersectionality, center storytelling. No kidding, that's one of their primary principles of success. Build resilience and sustainability. How about that? Another one, just to read another, another of the whole descriptions, equity requires cultural and systems change, systems change as a principle of success, at the foundational level. Equity should be more than a priority area, it should be woven into an agency's DNA. Make equity work everyone's work. Remember when I said they don't care whether you're doing your actual job at your company? They don't care if you're making your product. They don't care if you're serving your customers. Everybody becomes an equity agent, an officer, or it's a waste of resources. It is a cult. Everybody all... Er <laughs> make equity, equity work everyone's work. The office must foster a learning environment so there is trust among internal and external partners to correct course when necessary. In other words, you better listen to 
the officers were going to tell you how, the technocrats were going to tell you how this works. Make equity work everyone's work. Remember, this is legislatively put into place in a state in the United States with the governor's signature on it at the governor's request that it was done in the first place. This isn't some fringe or this isn't like some little company in the middle of Minnesota. This is an entire state in their state government. Make equity work everyone's work. Their explanation of their goals is a gem. Embrace equity. That's a goal. We are on a journey toward well-being where everyone has the opportunity to reach their full potential. That doesn't mean, so far, this doesn't mean anything. As defined by those impacted by inequity. Uh-oh, only certain people can tell you what it looks like. Stakeholders. Embracing equity requires us to identify, name, and dismantle institutional racism and oppression. Dismantle, dismantle, dismantle. Another one, focus on racism. Remember I told you that the, it's all going to racism. Sorry, gay people. <laughs> Sorry, trans, white privilege. Focus on racism. Racism, a construct of white supremacy, is used to oppress communities as other. We are committed to promoting equity for all historically marginalized communities. We recognize that different forms of discrimination and oppression are related to each other, and we will, make, we will take these relationships into account. We also recognize that racism is ingrained in our history and deeply embedded in our institutions today, leading to the inequities we see across all sectors. We seek to challenge and undo all forms of oppression, and we are committed, committed to centering racism as our primary focus. Again, that's the state of Washington. Don't lose sight of that. Centering racism, centering racism. I have a hypothesis I put forth a long time ago. The intersectionality was a grift to get all the other marginalized groups, as they call them, to carry water for a very radical and very angry black power movement. And now the mask is coming off. It's exactly what this is. Every other identity group is going under this bus as fast as they can because we must center race. We must make race the only priority. Their definition of equity, developing, listen to this nonsense, developing, strengthening, and supporting policies and procedures that distribute and prioritize resources to those who have been historically and currently marginalized, including tribes. Equity requires the elimination of systemic barriers that have been deeply entrenched in systems of inequality and oppression. Equity achieves procedural and outcome fairness, promoting dignity and honor and respect for all people. So they say some crazy stuff right after, this is some really nice fluff, say something crazy, say some more fluff, say something crazy, and then end it with a little bit of fluff. So it all sounds really good, right? The, oper the operational sentence though, Distribute and prioritize resources to those who have been historically marginalized. That's what equity is about. That's the actual definition. That's the part that matters. How are we going to analyze it? Deeply entrenched in systems of inequality and oppression through neo-Marxism. So now we know. Equity statement. Equity. This is their equity statement for the state of Washington now. Equity requires a commitment to bold action. That's apparently not white supremacy culture. It begins with the acknowledgement. Remember, the, doing something about a problem was white supremacy, but this isn't that. This is different, this is good. It begins with the acknowledgement of historical systems of institutional racism and oppression that have led to the uneven distribution of benefits and burdens in our communities. Racism is ingrained in our history and deeply embedded in our institutions, affecting all sectors. An equitable decision-making process prioritizes community-led decisions driven by those most affected. Neo-Marxism.
Generational healing takes time and requires us to embrace discomfort and practice humility. Remember when AOC went on TV and said that the learning process is supposed to be uncomfortable while like Minneapolis was on fire? That's what she was actually defending was Minneapolis being burned down by rioters, looters, and arsonists. And she said that change is supposed to be uncomfortable. Generational healing takes time and requires us to embrace discomfort and practice humility. Equity ensures everyone has full access to the opportunities, power, and resources they need to flourish and achieve their full potential. In their own words, their approach can be summarized under disrupt, dismantle, re-envision, and rebuild. Build back better. You just have to disrupt and dismantle first. Then you can re-envision and rebuild. So, again, this all operates on cotton candy. This, it's the communist spontaneity thesis is what I call this, is what I described earlier. Is that socialism, if sufficiently enforced, whether it's the race version, the neo-Marxist, neo-socialist version, whether the old economic version, vulgar socialism or whatever you want to call it, that if you force that long enough with hard enough with a dictatorship, eventually it'll become spontaneous. And then it'll, we don't need the state anymore and the state will go away and then we have a perfect liberated society or a communist utopia or racial justice at last. They don't have any, any idea I have these shirts, communism doesn't know how. I have a podcast, communism doesn't know how. That's what I'm talking about. They don't know how to get to justice. They believe that if they enforce equity hard enough for long enough with dictatorial force, with complete authoritarianism and maybe totalitarianism, then eventually it will be spontaneous. That's what I refer to as the communism or communist spontaneity thesis. They think it'll just emerge. Herbert Marcuse said that the seeds of the future society are contained within the present society. You just have to strip away through negative thinking the problematics of the existing society so that seed can emerge. That's also alchemy, by the way. That's literally how alchemy is believed to make gold out of lead, that the seeds of gold hide in the base metal, and if you do the right magic spells and drink enough mercury or something, uh, self-flagellate at the right time, then those seeds will awaken and grow, and the entire body of base metal will turn into gold doesn't work, but it makes you mad as a hatter when you drink the, the mercury, as they say. In practice, what's going to happen is the equity adherence in this way is going to get you a good S score and a good G score, but especially a G S score in your, in your ESG metric that BlackRock is pulling you around by the nose with. Equity has a very long pedigree, though. Like I said a minute ago, it started in 1968 with H. George Fredrickson, who coined the term social equity theory. He's from the University of Kansas. He's a public administration official, or scholar, I should say. He wrote, he, sorry, he, he gave a talk that became a paper titled The New Public Administration at the Minnebrook Conference in 1968, which was just incidentally organized by a guy with a very strange name, Dwight Waldo. I don't know much about Dwight Waldo yet. Dwight Waldo wrote the book in the 1940s, 48, I think, titled The Administrative State, literally the title of the book. So social equity grew up in public administration and emerged at a conference organized by and in service to a guy who wrote the book called The Administrative State. It is an administrative state poison. So when I warned about people not, maybe they shouldn't vote for Biden, as we now, I've been vindicated a year later, as I said a year ago, the problem won't necessarily be Biden himself, though there are lots of problems there. It is that he's going to make the administrative state do a lot of dirty work, that it's all going to be equity this and diversity that and critical race theory this and whatever that. All this woke stuff is going to come in through it. 
And that's where this all grew up, was in that place. Fredrickson wanted equity, social equity to be the third pillar of public administration theory. So it was efficiency and um, economy. Before, that's good public administration should be efficient and economical. He said, no, it should also have social equity worked in. He was a progressive, but I think he was mostly liberal. He's definitely imbibed some neo-Marxist ideas, but he writes in the liberal tradition, he cites John Rawls repeatedly, who the neo-Marxists and then the later woke people hate. John Rawls wrote A Theory of Justice, I think in 71 or something like this. Um, he's a huge thinker in terms of, of these things. He's most famous for his, his thought experiment called The Veil of Ignorance. How would you create a fair society? What would the policies look like? He said the best way to do this as a thought experiment is imagine that you have a veil of ignorance between you and the world. You know you're going to enter the world. You get to order the world from outside like God, but you don't know who you're going to be in the world until you enter it. How would you organize society if you had the power to do so? That's the thought experiment. And so he leans heavily on Rawls, and it turns out these people don't like Rawls because Rawls was unabashedly, even though very progressive, a liberal in his approach, meaning classically liberal with bent progressive, which I know is a bit of a contradiction. But it's, his ideas are very heavily rooted in, in Rawls, and they're not a big fan of this. He wrote a paper in 1990 called Public Administration and Social Equity that looks back at this paper and its impact, and I'm going to read to you a little bit from that. Um, in the introduction, he said, to remedy what seemed a glaring, this is where social equity theory came from, to remedy what seemed a glaring inadequ inadequacy in both thought and practice that developed a theory of social equity, put it forward as the third pillar for public administration, holding the same status as economy and efficiency as values or principles to which public administration should adhere. The initial reasoning I had went this way. To say that a service might be well-managed and that a service might be efficient and economical still begs these questions. Well-managed for whom? Efficient for whom? Economical for whom? Neo-Marxism. That is imbibed neo-Marxism. Who benefits as the question behind every single decision? We've generally assumed in public administration a convenient oneness with the public. We have not focused our attention or concern on the issue of variations in the social or economic conditions. It is of great convenience, both, theor both theoretically and practically, to assume that citizen A is the same as citizen B, and that they both receive public services in equal measure. This assumption may be convenient, but it's obviously both illogical and empirically inaccurate. But that's because it's a straw man. You can see the neo-Marxist current. You can see these a bit muddle-headed saying that that social equity should be at least as important as efficiency and economy and public administration. But the thing is, it's a straw man. Nobody assumes that citizens A and B receive public services in equal measure. Nobody assumes that. That's equal outcomes. All people are asking for is that if they seek them, they are available. The access is equal. That's the dichotomy, the game they're playing between outcomes and access. That's how the whole equity trick works. They say access, but they mean outcomes because they measure the outcomes in the access in terms of the outcomes. What is his remedy? What is social equity theory about? Adjusting shares. The concept of equity was first include was later included, he said, and first adopted in the principles of the American Society for Public Administration, ASPA, which later became the Code of Ethics. In 1981, the ASPA Professional Standards and Ethics Study Guide for Public Administrators in the section on professional ethics listed as the first two principles to be the pursuit of equality, which is to say citizen A being equal to citizen B, and equity, which is to say adjusting shares so that citizen A is made equal to citizen B. So somehow, 
Their ethics guide says that those two blatantly contradictory ideas are to be the two key pillars of how they approach it. And so the dialectic progresses. So citizen A being equal to citizen B is equality. Citizen A having his shares adjusted so that citizen B is made equal, or so he's made equal to citizen B is equity. It's as explicit in writing from the guy who cooked the thing up. This is a blatant intellectual swindle. He also argued, very neo-Marxist imbibing here, uh, that neutrality is impossible. And so since neutrality is impossible, deliberate bias becomes a good. And therefore, the critical theorists were able to sneak in and say, people who have critically informed biases have the only good way to think about this, because all other ones are reproducing oppression, racism, sexism, etc. And so what he said about the neutrality being impossible, he said, in the early years, it was also the conventional wisdom that public administration was neutral and only marginally involved in policymaking. Under these conditions, it is, a, it is possible to ignore social equity. Now the theology holds. I think it's significant that he calls it a theology about how public administration works. Now the theology holds that public administration is a part or form of politics, that it often exercises leadership in the policy process, and that neutrality is next to impossible. If that is the case, then it is not logically possible to dismiss social equity as a suggested guide for administrative action equal to economy and efficiency. Well, actually, that equals an extra assumption that it, if it's just because it's possible doesn't mean it has to be equal. But he believes that you have to take something like social equity into account because one cannot actually be neutral. This is where the neo-Marxist door is opened wide because they're going to say the critical theory is the only way to understand who actually has the understanding of non-neutrality through that thing I called the master-slave dialectic earlier, which gives you what's called standpoint epistemology or intersectional positionality in which you can understand the axes of oppression and so on, and thus create equity. So this is obviously a bureaucratic virus growing up in public administration. The scope creep is clearly the means by which this was moved, but the conclusion you can draw, even social equity theory in 1968, as put forth by Fredrickson, is that equity is the, the idea is an administered redistribution of resources or shares, neo-socialism, that's going to be done if neo-Marxism is taken over across all axes of social inequality in accordance with neo-Marxist or critical theory or identity Marxist theory as it's evolved in our time. You could debate about the merits of social equity theory in a liberal framework, which I think Fredrickson was in good faith trying to do as far as I can tell. But that comes down to the argument about when are you talking about access and when are you talking about outcomes and equalizing those things. And I think there's a lot of space for legitimate debate there. If something's legitimately discriminatory, maybe there is a room for, for, for giving uh, a corrective. If there is a genuine physical impediment that creates inequality of access, maybe there is a good reason to create something like maternity leave that kind of softens that. We don't reject ideas like equity out of hand when there is a clear inequality of access. But that's what that's the whole argument really comes down to. But this isn't what happens under critical social equity, which is what we're getting have, having implemented in our DEI programs and equity programs everywhere you go. It's all about the systematic or systemic power thinking. It's all about who's a protected class, who's a historically marginalized group, how do they get favored at the cost of everybody else with whites having to be re-educated? How do we redistribute according to those same lines of discrimination or whatever? So it's all identity Marxist class conflict as the driver of all analysis. 
And it's all about redistributing outcomes, power, privilege, resources, material, et cetera, as a means of reimagining society, which you'll then force because people don't want to do this because it's a terrible idea. And then eventually it'll become spontaneous and we'll have racial justice. That's the point. Under this program, of course, like we've heard, neutrality is not possible. It doesn't exist. There is no neutral position. You're either with the oppressor or the oppressed. Power is often unconscious and hidden, and that's what actually creates inequities. People don't have to be openly discriminatory. They might think that they're non-discriminatory, but it creates discrimination anyway. Um, it's invisible to the people who are privileged by it, so you need a critical theory to pull it open that's based on the master-slave dialectic where the oppressed have double sight, dual consciousness, as it were, as W.E.B. Du Bois phrased it. Um, there, this all kind of gets to rest in this equality of opportunity uh, ambiguity. It turns out there's lots of different ways you can measure opportunity. Uh, Fredrickson outlines a number of them, but the two that I thought were the most kind of easy to just get a taste for this were prospect equality, as he called it, and means equality. And so prospect equality would be where we have a literal lottery. One of you guys is going to get a prize, and I pull a number, everybody has an exactly equal chance that's, your prospects are equal no matter what. It's just a straight one-to-one -one lottery. Um, those are pretty rare in kind of hiring situations. Means equality is the person who can, have the, who, who can do the job gets the job regardless of what they look like or who they happen to be, judging by quality of character and output of merit. And he, he points out there's an ambiguity in what equality means, which one are these? And then he points out like five different kinds, and he says there's so much complication. We have to make a very complicated equity theory to figure this out. And then that's what he did. That's ultimately where Fredrickson had it come from. Um, that's where I made the joke that we're going to say it does kind of come down to what you mean by is. Well, it means what did you mean by equals. And as a mathematician, equals and is are the same thing. Um, <laughs> that's a math joke and you laughed. Gotcha. How do you know, though, under neo-Marxist analysis, if the opportunities are access or equal, when the outcomes are equal, that's how. And of course, this is all just that big linguistic manipulation. They're tricking you on what they mean by equality. With Kendi's very simplistic, either you think there's something wrong with the, the, the test or you think there's something wrong with the people, as if it's that simplistic. But that's literally his, his argument. It's a very thin shell game. And once you learn to see the shell game and become discerning with it, you can tell, is this a legitimate bid to increase the scope of access or is this a neo-Marxist manipulation in order to redistribute resources to some, uh, some bogus program that doesn't fit reality, that's pseudo-real. Usually by calling for a complete system overhaul that they conveniently will guide and lead on the other side. As time goes on and these things get challenged, they get more increasingly desperate. They start banning tests that might reveal that their program sucks, for example, because it's, it's not working. And they, papering over things that aren't working gets harder and harder when reality starts hitting you in the face. Why isn't this illegal? The effing Supreme Court. That's why. Bad jurisprudence, as it turned out, that probably didn't seem like bad jurisprudence at the time, set the legal stage. The, the, Tackled civil rights law came into the picture in the 60s, 64, 65, 68. I think there's another one in 71 or two. Um, civil rights law came onto the scene, created this whole question. Affirmative action got brought into the picture, created lots of lawsuits. Civil rights law had to be adjudicated against. These cases were new to the Supreme Court, and it turns out they made some dumb decisions. And Griggs, Griggs versus Duke Power, the ruling was that disparate impacts can be taken as proof of discrimination. This was decided by 
uh, or was the opinion was rendered by Chief Justice Berger. Um, so inequity itself, differences in outcomes, can be taken as proof of discrimination. And so the company must be able to demonstrate, according to the court, that the assessment that's being used for, to be quite specific, is relevant to job performance. Because what Griggs, I'm sorry, what Duke Power was doing was giving people intelligence tests to decide if they could get out of the lowest tier of employment. And they knew that the black people couldn't read as much because it was 1971 or 70 and schools hadn't really caught up. And so they were using intelligence tests to discriminate and the court realized that they were actually using discrimination and their tests as discrimination in that way and busted them on it. But what they did was they opened the door to uh, disparate impacts being recognized as proof of discrimination, even though their ruling should be really a lot more narrow, which is the decision that he actually rendered or they actually rendered, which is that the assessment must be relevant to job performance or else it's probably going to be discriminatory if it has discriminatory outcomes. It's a very narrow interpretation that's now been broadened to any disparate impact might be understood as proof of racism. I won't read to you what Berger's decision said, but um, it's very key. Let me see if I find the, the, the key part. Um, besides the fact that it's Oh, it's this very narrow decision. Um, he opened a door here. I don't want to read this whole paragraph to get it to you. Uh, Congress did not intend by the Title VII, however, by Title VII to guarantee a job to every person regardless of qualifications. In short, the act does not command that any person be hired simply because he was formerly the subject of discrimination or because he's a member of a minority group. Discriminatory preference for any group, minority, or majority is precisely and only what Congress has prescribed. What is required by Congress is the removal of artificial, arbitrary, and unnecessary barriers to the employment when the barriers operate invidiously to discriminate on the basis of racial or other impermissible classification. So that's the narrow interpretation that he has. Um, but he makes the argument that, oh, because they are Negroes, petitioners have long received inferior education in segregated schools, and this court expressly recognized these differences in Gaston County versus United States 1969. There, because of the inferior education received by Negroes in North Carolina, this court barred the institution of a literacy test for voter registration, blah, blah, blah. So he said, oh, the, you can, we can look back one step in the system. We can look at the bigger system in which we're, we're looking at the context. And that's where this systemic thinking got its inroad through what is a fairly reasonable set of statements being made by the Chief Justice here of the Supreme Court. And so you can see where Kendi's idea comes back into the picture, which is all inequity is proof of discrimination. Well, here it was only when it's discriminatory, but we can look kind of at the system. Now, Kendi's like, the system is everything. The system is metastasized into everything. And that's where you end up him having him call for a dictatorship of the anti-racists under the name DOA. Um, I even put the whole Kendi quote here again, so I could tell you that's really what he's doing. Um, critical race theory then is something that has attempted to codify and expand this view repeatedly to the point where now Kendiism is the idea of instituting a dictatorship of the anti-racist in the government in order to enforce equity in the way that was not intended in the original decision. But until that decision gets clarified on that particular point and the application gets narrowed again, we're stuck because subsequent cases have spread this and expanded it. For example, in the United Steelworkers versus Weber, 1979, the other end of the decade, uh, the, the point there is that historically marginalized groups are being 
systemically or have been systemically discriminated against. And so they can be treated as protected classes under Title VII. And so race consciousness and hiring under Title VII is permissible when you're dealing with a historically oppressed group. And that, of course, creates a massive imbalance, unlevel playing field, and incentive structure for people to play in. And the equity industry really grew within that context, was made legal within that context by these decisions around Title VII in the 1970s. The effect that they had on this case, uh, Steelworkers versus Weber, was that racial minorities and women can be positively discriminated for to correct statistical imbalances. But the Chief Justice argued that the, the, the imbalances must end after, or the, the, the programs must end after the imbalance is corrected, and then the dissent, which included Justice Ginsburg, said, no, we can't put a statute of limitations on it because what if it doesn't get fixed? And so it has to be open-ended forever and that was in her, her dissent. Um, but the ruling actually had that when the historical inequality in that specific institution has been corrected, the, the program has to end. That's clearly what they've worked hard to work around ever since. So in the 70s, they were made, like again, this is this, this is time when we're in both neo-Marxism's like filtering in, but it's mostly in the kind of slightly progressive liberal fr frame that's very different. Scope creep is what actually got us there to the point where we are now. Uh, but this was recognized. Judge Rehnquist was also in the dissent on this decision, and he quoted 1984 and said that what this is is basically producing quotas out of non-quotas. What this is is discrimination becoming non-discrimination, and that's literally what California tried to do with its constitution in the last election to remove the anti-discrimination language. That's exactly what Kendi says in page 19 of How to Be an Anti-Racist, where he says that the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Unabashedly advocating for discrimination. And Rehnquist saw this coming in his dissent and said, this is 1984. We're going into 1984 meaning Orwell's book, not years. Um, it was before 1984, so you have to specify. So, jokes. So the neo-Marxism intensifies, as the meme would have it at that point, through, from there to now. This neo-Marxism took advantage of these doors, these, these programs in DEI, took social equity theory and started to interpret it in terms of critical social equity theory, and slowly the definition of social equity or equity changed so that now we have to interpret it entirely through power dynamics. We have to interpret it entirely through this analysis where there's white supremacy as the organizing principle of society, and so whites have this advantage and they don't even know it, and blah, 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 and we have to redistribute across the axis of uh, stratification there. And so neo-Marxism colonized what might have been badly worded, but good intended policy, or might have been mixed with actual neo-Marxism from the beginning too, and therefore also evil, it's hard to pick apart who's on what side writing you know, 50 years ago, especially when biographies are thin on the ground for these people. Uh, but what we ended up creating out of this equity program or whatever societally was neo-socialism. And its goal is the trajectory toward neo-communism which we're gonna call a public-private partnership or justice or stakeholder capitalism or some nonsense. It's neo because it's based not in Marxism but in neo-Marxism. That means it's now using the kaleidoscopic understanding of power dynamics. 
The goal is an administered state that's going to redistribute resources, especially privilege and power, but also material resources across those lines. Reparations is material resources. Uh, diversity hiring, for example, is going to be privilege and power. Um, what does the Washington State document tell us about this? Eliminating racism and oppression requires revolutionary change. The offices, the office of equity. We read this before. The office of equities of equities work must be transformative. It must disrupt and dismantle historical and institutional racism and oppression throughout every sector and layer of government. Total realignment to neo-Marxism. This is critical social equity. This is what will, if forced long enough, become critical social justice. When we say equity, there's an idea called social equity that it's generally actually referring to that's been colonized by critical social equity, which is infused with neo-Marxism. Our friend Robin DiAngelo, along with her compatriot Uslam uh, Sensoy, wrote in their book, Is Everyone Really Equal?, which is obviously on this topic. In 2012, that's an education book that's very easy to read. Just as our common sense understanding would have led us or would have convinced us that the earth is flat, validated by looking out our windows, many of the arguments that we make in this book may also counter common sense understandings. Yeah, they have the enlightened view. They're the Gnostics. For example, common sense would tell us that we, because we do not believe in discrimination, we do not engage in it. However, most discrimination is unconscious and takes place whether we intend to discriminate or not. Neo-Marxism has taken over the diversity industry by 2012 when this was published, despite genuinely held beliefs of fairness and equity. If we think critically about this idea, critically, that we do not discriminate, we would discover that this belief is inaccurate. There's a great deal of research in the dynamics of discrimination that demonstrates again and again the power of discrimination to elude conscious awareness. It's unconscious bias. Were we to consider the impact of the idea that we do not discriminate, we might discover that this idea actually allows discrimination to continue. Thus, those who benefit from societal patterns of discrimination may be invested in not understanding the actual nature of discrimination. So you have nefarious motives and not fighting on their side, not joining their cult. You just want to keep your privilege. Thinking critically, they say, requires the ability to recognize and analyze how knowledge is socially constructed and infused with ideology. Critical thinking is not just acquiring new knowledge. Today we know that the earth is round and not flat. It is also understanding the social meaning given to that knowledge, neo-Marxism, our social and political investment in the idea that before the age of discovery, all people believed that the earth was flat. So knowledge is contingent on who you happen to be, which they then, not because we didn't know what we were talking about in the 1200s, but then they, they then conflate with being in an identity category because the people in privileged identity categories can't see oppression and don't care and have an investment in keeping it. It crept into schools through fiscal equity in New York State particularly. Schools didn't have the same amount of tax dollars coming in to fund them, so it crept in and the scope expanded and expanded and expanded to where it's the equity of today. In praxis, this is a nightmare. Examples Stride in hiring, S-T-R-I-D-E. That's from the University of Michigan, where the Grutter versus Bollinger case we'll talk about tomorrow was, where a lot of this stuff cooked up. Stride is a program. I know somebody who facilitates Stride in a sciences program, and it was explained to me this way. Women have half as many first author papers as men. Therefore, when a woman submits an application, we just double the number of first author papers she has to do diversity and equity in hiring. And I asked this facilitator, I said, 
do you know that all of the difference is due to discrimination? And he got very mad, like literally just like I hit a brain worm and he just flipped out and he was like, what else could it be? No other possible explanation was allowed. So that kind of hiring where they do some very ham-fisted making up for some superficial difference. Oh, you know, we only have, you know, 20% whatever, multiply by five. We only have 50% whatever, multiply by two. Very ham-fisted and simplistic. Secondly, allocating resources by race in terms of granting and restricting resources. Um, Biden's equity plan in farming is a great example of that. Of course, that was found unconstitutional. Scarier when we turn to medicine, differential care in medicine involves granting and restricting access so that you can equalize outcomes by group. They screwed around with that with the vaccine policy. They said it was racism, blah, blah, blah. Then they backed off from that. Um, but there's actually a teaching hospital in, uh, affiliated with Harvard in Boston that is doing an experiment with, with racially preferenced care and admissions to a cardiac and pulmonary ward, or one or the other, or both. I don't know exactly which it is anymore. It's not in front of me. That's going to lead to what we call medical Lysenkoism. Lysenko was the Soviet agriculturalist who starved probably close to 100 million people between the Soviet Union and China with his stupid fake Soviet biology that you had to believe and had to implement on pain of going to the gulag or Siberia or being shot if you didn't believe it or if you implemented actual farming practices that work because those are bourgeois Western agriculture as opposed to good communist uh, Lysenko biology that doesn't work and starved millions. Um, they did this with physics too at first. Physics was all bourgeois Western science and then they realized that the United States built a nuclear weapon and physics was all of a sudden very communist too, right afterwards. We're gonna see this within climate justice, which is the umbrella term, climate equity would be the relevant thing. That's where we're gonna see, oh, well, you know, the United States produces all this pollution and contributed this much to climate change and the, you know, I don't know, the sub-Saharan African region or something in South America or something in India bears the brunt of climate change more uh, severely. So now we're going to make the West pay for those damages or we're going to allow those people to immigrate with uh, no restrictions to the West to enjoy Western society that's actually been ruining their world. Um, those are actually initiatives within the climate justice program. Those are real. I'm not theorizing. In schools, we've actually, here's some things I've actually seen in the last year. Nobody gets an F. There's no F grade anymore. Actually, before I quit in 2010 teaching, I taught a class where there were no Ds or F grades. ABC, no credit. If you failed the course, that was the last class I taught. You just didn't, it just didn't happen. That was the last class I taught in university. That was some BS. Schools have done no grades below 50%, which would have really hurt the basketball team in my, or helped the basketball team in my class, not hurt. I gave a basketball player a nine one year. Everyone gets an A to inflate, inflate the low but not the high grades. That was suggested in the state of Washington when COVID first happened and everybody went home and they didn't know what to do in the spring semester last year. And they said, we have no idea what to do. If we just give everybody an A, the people with the lowest grades, their grades will come up. People who have high grades, it doesn't hurt them. Plus, this makes more equitable grades. But it also cheapens what the grade is. So you see what equity does is it cheapens the thing because the redistribution isn't based in something real like merit or quality. It's based in an arbitrary redistribution of shares. Um, 
grading, uh, group projects and grading are becoming increasingly common. That's equity. They'll put all the work, everybody knows what group projects are like. All the work goes on the, the two people who are going to work the hardest, and then four screw around and make a mess. What's happening in practice, somebody recently told me who's kind of doing this stuff in education, is that the kids who are really good are just not trying because they know they're getting screwed over now. And so everybody's getting a C. Another point of equity in schools is restorative justice, which could have been a reasonably interesting approach to attempt, but it's been totally colonized by uh, critical theories. Restorative justice basically means don't discipline minorities. Just take all the varnish off of the fancy word. There's a school-to-prison pipeline. Just don't discipline them when they act up and it doesn't happen. So equity produces equal access to a pile of rubble. That's what we said in Cynical Theories, Helen and I did. Um, because the easiest form of equity to achieve is everybody gets little or nothing. It's impossible. I don't mean hard. It is impossible to raise every single person up to the level of excellence because excellence doesn't have any meaning anymore. You can get everybody above baseline standards, but to raise everybody to excellence is not possible. To bring everybody down, raise, R-A-Z-E, ha-ha, everybody to zero is certainly possible. Puns and puns. So my new phrase, you guys have to use this everywhere. Meme this. My new phrase is equity equalizes downward. It creates equal outcomes by bringing everything down. It results in stifled innovation and motivation. If you look at motivation theory, I actually, by the way, started but didn't finish an MBA. So I took motivation theory in the business management department, which was a trip for a physics major. And uh, my teacher, by the way, fun history lesson, could not pronounce motivation. My motivation theory teacher could not pronounce motivation. She called it motivation theory. It was very confusing until I figured that out. <laughs> motivation theory is actually very complicated. It's very difficult to understand what motivates people and keeps them working. But one thing that's known by looking at how money turns out to be what's called a paradoxical motivator is that when people perceive unfairness, their motivation falls off precipitously, unbelievably fast. You have just a few percent underpaid and people's motivation drops to virtually zero. They just won't do their job. And then it's paradoxical because if you go higher, if you pay them too much, they'll work up to it a little bit and then their motivation drops because they become entitled. That's money. But the same thing's gonna happen with other aspects of work. If they think that they can't get the job because of their the, the, the white male or straight or whatever, why try? So you have people try less hard because they know the promotion's not on the other side. Meanwhile, and I've literally talked to somebody who got hired, a young woman, a very talented young woman who got a job recently, and their, her company that hired her has a diversity hiring for women policy. And she went into one of the worst cases of imposter syndrome I've ever heard, thinking she was a diversity hire, a fake, a fraud. Because the only people who are going to be comfortable knowing they were hired because of who they happen to be, rather than their talent, is somebody who doesn't care how good their work is. So you're gonna select for mediocrity and you're gonna paralyze talent. That's what equity policies do in your company. You're gonna misdirect resources because equity work is everybody's work. Wasted resources. It's just more indoctrination. Everything becomes indoctrination. You're gonna undermine competence as the metric. 
Of course, that does the imposter syndrome thing, the why try thing and motivation, but it's a destruction of meritocracy, which is, as Jordan Peterson phrases it, and this I think one of his most important ideas that he's put out there, merit is the least corrupt form of forming a hierarchy. We are always going to form hierarchies. There are always going to be the people that are the bosses and the people that are working for them for various sets of reasons or whatever. There's always going to be some kind of a hierarchy. And when you base that in merit, it's the least corrupt form. It's not perfect. Meritocracy is the least corrupt form as an ideal or as a perfect, uh, as, as like a goal, an aspiration. It is the least corrupt form of organizing a hierarchy. And so this is the opposite of that. It's the destruction of meritocracy, which means it's the introduction of corruption. And that's without the other side of what I call the iron law of woke corruption, which is you see these people pushing equity, diversity, inclusion programs, and you dig into them, and they're almost always like doing like some kind of deal, like their husband runs this thing, and you're, they're, they're buying like millions of dollars of products in the school, or like we see now with Merrick Garland's son-in-law, owns the company selling the SEL and CRT program that he said that parents are now domestic terrorists for trying to oppose having sold to the schools for millions and millions of dollars. An extremist um, what you end up with with equity is Kurt Vonnegut's uh, novella, Harrison Bergeron, or short story. It's a long short story. If you don't know Harrison Bergeron, I'm not going to summarize the whole thing, but it's gone so far that you have the handicapper general who makes sure that if you're, you know, because there's some people who need glasses or whatever, that you have to wear glasses that make your vision not as good. And there's some people who are really smart, so he says they have to listen to annoying noise on headphones all day so they can't think straight because the dumb people. And the beautiful have to wear masks to hide that they're attractive. Mm, how about that? Um, and so on. So that everybody is actually made perfectly equal. That's the Harrison Burger. And that's the idea of equity taken to the extreme is everybody's made equal in everything. And the person that Vonnegut said was going to do that at the level of the government is the handicapper general, which is intense. So I know this has been a very long lecture. I appreciate your time and your attention. I know that you also came here for it. I'm up to two and a half hours. Little wrap up here. Equity is shorthand for social equity. Social equity has been corrupted into critical social equity. Critical social equity is the redistribution of resources according to neo-Marxism and identity Marxism. Its goal is to create neo-communism. It will be managed by, as we'll talk about for the next two, next two sessions, by diversity and inclusion officers who are commissars of the neo-socialism that is equity. That means it is socialism or a socialism-like redistribution of power and privilege along all of the different identity-based axes of power in addition to whatever little bit it still cares about economic class and material things. Equity is an administered cultural, how did I write it, social, cultural, and fiscal economy that will be led by the party of, of critical theorists. That party is mostly going to be made up of technocrats. They will be called ESG stakeholders when they're not the diversity officer at your work. The big ones are going to be ESG stakeholders. They will determine what is the right course of action for your diversity officers to tell you how to reorganize your company or whatever it is on the spot. They will delegate their role to identity experts that they appoint into your place. Like, well, like uh, somebody told me, and uh, I was doing a interview with a with a woman in a business setting. I don't want to get too specific in case it comes out who it was, but she was dealing with Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs was telling her that they were going to have to appoint soon two 
either DEI or ESG officers to oversee how things work. And it would be her company's job to hire and pay those people. But if they wanted to do business with the Goldman Sachs account, they would have to have those two people to have a sufficient score to be able to do business with Goldman Sachs uh, one way or the other, which is, of course, tons of money. It's a huge account to have to manage. Their idea is that if they enforce this long enough and forcefully enough, and if there's enough evangelism for the identity Marxism along the way, that it will spontaneously turn into, turn into a utopia, neo-communism. Critical social justice will emerge from critical social equity spontaneously. Equity doesn't work for the same reasons that socialism doesn't work. Being a, redistribu a redistribution scheme that's not firmly rooted in merit, it's corruptible and it ultimately fails. People don't think it's fair, they don't participate, they get pissed off, they're fighting with each other, they're wasting resources doing stupid things that don't actually need to be done, fighting, uh, what is it, Thomas Sowell said that these folks are keeping racism on life support so they can keep fighting it. That's what it does. Equity in medicine is going to be, medical lysenkoism is going to be deadly. It will also be a massive, like if we get out of this, a historical human rights failure like Nuremberg trials level. But it's here. They're doing it. When it comes to climate, it'll be the biggest source of geopolitical conflict in decades. Because the rich nations are going to be blamed for everything and everybody else is going to be told that they're entitled to be made up for for that while problems are arising and being blamed on the climate change, whether that's the actual cause or not. Its biggest point is that it's the critical, it is a key component to the ESG framework, so it enables the ESG framework, the technocracy that's coming into power to rule over us. Their idea there is that any inequity causes instability because there's a stratification in society, which they believe Marxian conflict theory. So if there's a stratification, there must be conflict across that stratification. So if you just get rid of all of the stratification in society, if you get total equity, then you have less conflict. And if there's no conflict, there's a sustainable system in the world. Conflict is what breaks the existing systems. So if they want a sustainable system, there has to be equity. That's why it's part of the S in ESG. That's the logic behind that. Of course, it also creates a huge moral cover for other abuses. You can see the uh, Mulan and think about that. Vivek in his book, Woke Inc., gives a handful of other great examples from Goldman Sachs and Nike and a few other places. What you want to know is that equity is a huge watchword. This is the simplest take home I can give you today. If you see equity, critical race theory is there. If you see equity, critical gender theory is there. If you see equity, all this garbage, the woke garbage is there. They didn't say that there's critical race theory. They said there's equity. And if it said racial equity, it's critical race theory. Period. There is no other. Nobody else uses that word now. If you see it in a policy, it means woke is there. It's the most powerful and important watchword. So everywhere you see it, you have to ask informed questions. You have to dig. You have to keep asking officials questions. You have to keep pressing them while you can on those things. You have to go be a domestic terrorist and ask those questions, which is apparently a problem now for the moment. If you're a lawyer, look to the camera. I don't know who else in the room. If you're a lawyer, narrowing the scope of the ruling back to or even more narrow to what we saw in Griggs versus Duke Power, getting rethinking the historically marginalized group argument of uh, United Steelworkers versus Weber, 
narrowing the scope of those kinds of policies, especially disparate impact and putting intention back into discrimination suits, narrowing that impact is absolutely crucial. Disparate impact should be narrowed to little or nothing in terms of discrimination suits. The standard about, you know, is there, uh, is it germane to the job is a fairly reasonable thing as far as I can tell. There should be very narrow, reasonable standards for when disparate impact should count as discrimination that's legally actionable under civil rights law. That's a very important legal battle. It needs strategy to get to it. It's not going to be easy to overturn now four decades of jurisprudence. We have to get past allowing historically oppressed as a legitimate category for these kinds of decisions as well. If they want to try to shift it to currently oppressed, I say there's a big argument to be had there. Fine. You better define oppression very clearly. You better keep the neo-Marxists out of their favorite word, good luck. But historically oppressed has no remedy. It is a blank check to continue to milk that situation and system over and over and over again and to say that nothing is ever good enough. So that's another legal challenge. But if you, whether you're working with schools, whether you're working with whatever, if you happen to see historically oppressed in a policy, ask questions. Demand that it be changed. Say, that can't be fixed. You can't change the past. So, historically marginalized or oppressed, are they still? That has to be the relevant question. And then we can talk about equity because if there is, it's very easy to make the strong, morally strong statement, if there is legitimate discrimination, I want to do what I can to either end it or help ameliorate that situation. If there's a legitimate unfair lack of access for some and not others, I want to do my part to help change that situation. But if it's based in, oh, a hundred years ago, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act. That's historical. We cannot change that. We cannot say, oh, Chinese people were the Chinese people are the only intentional ethnic cleansing in America because they combined the anti-miscegenation laws with the Chinese Exclusion Act. They were literally trying to breed, breed Chinese people out of the country or unbreed them. No babies. You can't marry somebody who's not Chinese, and you can't come in if you're Chinese. So they're trying to get rid of all the Chinese people in a generational war. That's what the point of the Chinese Exclusion Act was historically oppressed. So it's, I mean, they're white now, so it's obvious that we don't give them a permanent leg up. They're a different kind of diversity now. They're Schrodinger's diversity. Just to kind of point out, the easiest point of pushback, though, is, is at meritocracy. The point that you should be asking for anywhere there's going to be some kind of a diversity, equity, or inclusion so that it becomes workable and closer to reasonable, the easiest thing to add is that there's no compromise in standards. To qualify is an objective standard that's the same for everybody, period. The military's original affirmative action was actually very successful because this is how it worked. They made this, they didn't, they changed no standards and they offered extra help open to anybody who needed it, knowing it would have a racially disparate list of people signing up, and it worked. And it increased team unity, and it got more people through to the basic level of competence, but they never lowered the level of competence. They didn't give no grades below 50. Everybody gets an A. We're just going to get rid of the test. The test was still there. It's still the most important thing. So equity is a disaster, just to talk off the cuff and let us get out of here and 
drink or something. Um, enjoy the, the night beach and the crabs outside. The, the point is that equity is socialism. Equity is socialism. That's it. I could have done the whole talk in three words, it turns out. <laughs> but it's hard to understand how it's legal, how it got here, where it came from, who's involved, and it's bigger picture connected to the DEI industry overall. Equity, though, is the socialism component. We're going to turn tomorrow to diversity. It's just one topic, not two, so it'll be a little faster. And we'll do inclusion in the third lecture, and you'll see how the, the, the diversity and the inclusion are made to create the party that infects the socialism, that creates the dictatorship of the anti-racist. So equity of socialism is, is, if you remember nothing else, put that on a shirt and wear that shirt. So take it to your school board and wear that shirt. Equity of socialism, you don't want it. It will not make things better. Best thing you could possibly say about it is that it was started with good intentions and has been colonized by evil. It may have even started in evil though. It's hard to tell. It's a rebranding of socialism. And so that's our equity talk. Thank you for bearing with that almost three hours. Thank you.